Hello and welcome to Shakespeare and Pals, the inaugural episode. I'm Michael and this is... Hi, I'm Greg. And we are going through Shakespeare's plays one by one from the first to the last, tracking his development over his plays, the themes he keeps returning to, and early indications of future successes. But first of all, Greg, what's your relationship to Shakespeare and to his plays? Yes, well, uh, like many Australians and I suspect many English-speaking people, my first introduction to Shakespeare was in high school. Um, I first fell in love with Shakespeare with Much Ado About Nothing. I was a big Dogbury fan. And I continued on into uni. I did some Shakespeare courses at the University of Newcastle while I got my Bachelor of Arts, uh, including an incredible course of Shakespeare on film talking specifically about some of the great adaptations over time. Um, and yeah, it's really gotten me into Shakespeare in general. Um, as for this play, that's a bit different. Have you read all of his plays? I have read all of his plays. Um, admittedly, it was a while ago, and there are some I will have no remembrance of, especially the histories, which were a slog. Um, I remember them being quite dry, and at the time I didn't care for history, so um, I did it for the bloody-mindedness of being able to say I read all his plays. My relationship with Shakespeare, I'll admit that despite the fact that I'm now making a Shakespeare podcast and I have a Shakespeare book club, uh, throughout my high school, and frankly up until nearly the end of university, I could barely read him. Part of me just couldn't understand the language, and the other half of me, I sort of concurred with that George Bernard Shaw comment that if you look at the morals, or what he viewed as the morals of Shakespeare plays, you know, that power corrupts, that sort of thing. If your grandmother said these sorts of things, you'd tell her to go away and stop being so platitudinous. But for a while, that was my view of Shakespeare. It was only taking a class on Renaissance drama, which turned out just to be Shakespeare drama, with Dr. Groves, Dr. Peter Groves at Monash University, that I started to think, well, if I actually look deeper into this, maybe there is something deeper there. But, Greg, what's your relationship to this play? Well, as I said, I have read all the Shakespeare plays, but this is not one I ever returned to. Um... This is only the second time I've ever read it. Uh, I did notice that there were things in it that I somehow remembered in other plays. It is one of those plays that were like a draft of later plays. He obviously took a lot of the stuff he learnt from Two Gentlemen of Verona to add, you know, two brothers who love the same woman, a girl dressing up as a page boy to follow her love. You know, these things were repeated. But also... Um, a lot of the comedy is very similar. Um, well, I'd say that my relationship to this play, like you, Greg, I wanted to be one of those people who said I had read all of Shakespeare. I admit I'm still working on that. But I got into Two Gentlemen of Verona a few years ago. I read the first act, I think, because I couldn't remember anything of the second act. I read the first act, 
And frankly, these scenes with Lance and Speed put me off it. Which and is hilarious I, because I was the exact opposite. They were the only ones I could stand. Yes, yes. <laughs> I must, I, I, perhaps I have a rather basic taste in that I prefer Shakespeare's later clowns who actually seem to say something rather than just idiots walking onto the stage. Yes, no, these are definitely idiots. (laughs) But now, usually at the start of these, I would give a background of the production of this play, some historical context. Unfortunately, no one in the Elizabethan era seems to have been writing down Shakespeare's life at this time, so we don't really know what was happening. We do know that at least by 1592, he was popular enough that Robert Greene felt impelled to call him an upstart crow. So maybe that means that this play was quite successful. But to give you some background as to his life story, his father was John Shakespeare, who was an up-and-coming middle-class sort, buying up lots of land and becoming a member of local uh, politics in Stratford. And uh, his father sort of shot himself in the foot because he entered the black market for wool and money lending, which are both no-nos in Shakespeare's day. And a few unpaid debts sent him plummeting downwards. And John Shakespeare may also have had a few Catholic sympathies in Protestant England, so that can't have helped anyone. (laughs) As for Shakespeare's education... He went to King's New School, a grammar school where he studied the Latin classics, which involved heapings of ancient theatre, as well as taking them out in public speaking. Although, as Dr. Johnson says, when you look at Shakespeare's works, it does seem that even if he knew Latin, even if he knew Italian, even if he knew French, he was clearly someone a lot more comfortable reading English translations. So... As to Shakespeare's theatrical career, he seems to have started out as an actor. At this time, cast lists were not very good and not very extensive, and we don't really know what he was acting as, not even in his own plays. So we don't know if he was a good or a bad actor. Although it's possible that in Stratford he joined the Queen's Men, and in that context he might have acted in a play based on Montemayor's Diana, which is the source text for The Two Gentlemen of Verona. But again, we don't know. Maybe we're just trying to find patterns where there, frankly, is very little information. I, I, I would expect that if he had not acted in it, he would have at least seen it. Um, the, the play in question is the history of Felix and Philomena, and the plot is scarily similar to the plot between uh, Proteus and Julia, it would be hard to imagine that he had not experienced it in some way. Yes, to any audience members unaware, most of Shakespeare's plots are taken, and in Shakespeare's time, they did not have our pearl clutching attitudes towards plagiarism. So, Shakespeare was, by stealing plots and frankly stealing entire lines, was doing something entirely a okay in his time period. Oh, I always considered Shakespeare to be the contemporary Quentin Tarantino. Has no original thoughts of his own, but somehow makes it his own. 
Well, I was surprised. Is it, contemporarily, it sounds like The Two Gentlemen of Verona was a hit. Um, one of the reasons we know it was one of his first plays is because of there's this famous text called the Pallidus Tamia, which was written by a minister who loved talking about literature. And he cites it as one of Shakespeare's first plays when he talks about Shakespeare as being as great as Plautus or Seneca. Yes, which at this point in Shakespeare's career, I think might be overselling it. <laughs> it it probably was at the time. At that at that point in time, he could only list five of Shakespeare's plays, and the only one of those that is a regular these days is *Midsummer Night's Dream*. But now let's get into the summary of the play. So as we're going through, we will just summarize these plays, but commentating on it, asking questions about it. So we start in media res. Valentine is heading off to see the world, and Proteus says, no, no, I'm not coming with you. I am in love. <laughs> yes, he is in love. In, uh, people, you know, will s obviously the ways that you write plays has changed over the course of a couple hundred years, but I was surprised at how, I mean, you could find something like this suggested in like a modern writer's workshop. They say, no, you need to start as late as possible. So here... The second we see their friendship is also the second that they are leaving each other. It starts in the middle of a conversation. He's going off to sea. He's staying here. says, oh, no, I've got my lover back home. So it's a very efficient opening. I mean, I don't want to say that efficiency is the only necessity of theatre, but this is, quite frankly, um, compelling. What did you think of starting the play at this exact moment? I liked it. I, I especially liked it because it sets what Shakespeare found to be the most important relationship. When I was reading the play and subsequently watched it, I didn't feel like um, Proteus and uh, Valentine had a really deep relationship. But if, if you took it on face value, Shakespeare says, we're starting with these two men because this is the story of these two men. This is the two gentlemen. And this is one of the actual few scenes they have a proper conversation together. I think it only happens like three or four times in the entire play. Oh, well, I suppose it's like, you know, if you set it up, first of all, you know, just accept this. They're friends. Don't, don't, we don't need to show Exactly. This. We don't have to explain why they're friends, uh, despite Valentine then rambling on to the Duke later on. Um, yeah. We, we, we know that they're friends, and we know that they're friends who are different. They're different people. They've got very different views of the world and of life, but they are close. Yes. I'd say I'd say that it is like the topos of Love at First Sight. You don't need to explain it. But then I don't think this play particularly uses Love at First Sight very well a bit later on. <laughs> no, it does um, not. So... Valentine, he's saying, well, you, you, uh, Proteus, you have a home wit. Uh, uh, but he's going off to see the world, and Proteus is staying home because he's in love with Julia. And quite directly, Valentine says that he doesn't even believe in love, which in a romantic comedy, we all know how that's going to turn out. I do think that Shakespeare gets better with that, though, over time. Like, I, I thought of that. Where 
the typical is I don't believe in love, whereas by the time he was really getting into his writing, he thought about different ways of presenting the protagonist before they fall in love. And I really love that when by the time he gets to Romeo and Juliet, he has a protagonist who very much believes in love. He's in love with someone else. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I, I think yeah. that's, that works better than this does. But, you know, this, yeah. this works today. We still have the romantic comedies of today where the guy just wants to sleep around. He doesn't believe in falling in love. Um, he just wants to party every day. <laughs> it's a pretty typical trope. Yes. But it goes to show just because something's cliche doesn't mean that it is bad. This no. is just how things are done. And, and it works in this case, in my opinion. It works yes. very well. Yes. Whenever I was reading these scenes, I just kept on thinking of that monkey's song, Now I'm a Believer. So, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but Proteus has this, this line that does seem to foreshadow both what's going to happen throughout the play, both to Valentine and to himself in a different way. So Proteus says, Yet writers say, as in the sweetest bud, the eating canker dwells, so doting love inhabits in the finest wits of all. So I like this line because it's on a literal level, he's just telling him that, oh, you say you don't like love, you say you hate love, but very later on, you're going to find a woman, you're going to love her. But it's also revealing the fact that, that in love, which is supposedly a sweet bud, maybe there's a canker of being a betraying bastard, like Proteus does turn out to be. So it's showing that, yes, love seems nice, but it can also corrupt people like Proteus. And also, it could be referring to Proteus, because Proteus, he does, at this point, seem like a good person, but he's going to turn out to be a monster. So, I think that's a fa fair thing to say. I didn't read it as that. I read it more as simply, uh, yeah, yeah, when you're in love, you're an idiot. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> rather than it, it corrupts you. It seems like at this stage, Proteus is quite positive about being in love. On that note, I'd like to point out, um, so you were saying that love makes you an idiot. Yes. My main view, the interesting thing I find about this is that, you know, Valentine is saying, you know, love is so bad, it, you shouldn't do it. But the way he criticizes love is by saying it makes you look like an idiot. So to be in love where scorn is bought with groans, coy looks with heart sore sighs, one fading moment's mirth with twenty watchful, weary, tedious nights, if haply won, perhaps a hapless gain, if lost, why then a grievous labour won, however but a folly bought with wit, or else a wit by folly vanquished. And he says to Proteus, love is your master, for he masters you, and he that is so yoked by a fool, methinks should not be chronicled for wise. Now the criticism of love here are not the criticisms of love that appear later on in the play via the plot. Because here he's saying, you know, there's nothing immoral about love. It's just that you look like an idiot. It's, you know, in a purely acceptable love, you, a single guy, and her, a single girl, towards her, you'll just do stupid things. You'll look cringeworthy, to use a modern word. Except the criticism of love that shows up via the plot is that Proteus turns into a betraying monster. So the criticisms that Valentine gives of love are not actually the bad things about love. They're not the bad things that love leads him to. And they're also not the things of love in general either, because it's these criticisms here that Speed then later uses against Valentine when Speed talks about Valentine being in love with Sylvia, which we will get to. Yeah. That is perhaps my favourite monologue of the play. So 
we'll yes, leave it Greg, to that. when we get when we get <laughs> to the moments where Speed and Lance are saying anything at all, I'm going to hand off the summary to you because <laughs> I will admit I skipped entirely over those. In my notes, I have quite extensive notes on the plot, and for their scenes, I just write Lance and Speed. <laughs> so Valentine is gone. He's gone off, off to sea. And Proteus asks Speed. So it's a, so Speed. He says, "I went off and gave the letter to your lady. She didn't seem to respond to it." Later on, it does appear that Speed mistook Julia's um, lady servant, maid servant, for Julia. And I think we'll see later on that Lucetta, Julia's maid servant, does appear to be the most reasonable character, or at least the most emotionally tempered character in the entire play. So the reason why she made no reaction whatsoever <laughs> might be because she's just someone who doesn't let these things go to her head. You would, you would be very interested by the Royal Shakespeare Company's current adaptation that you can see online. Uh, it, it paints Lucetta as probably the most unreasonable character in the play. Uh, a, a lady with quite a flight of fancy and somewhat played up even more so than the actor who plays up Speed. So, yeah, just as an interesting alternate interpretation. Ah, yes. Yes, there are quite a lot of ways to play these, and I've, I've seen quite divergent ways of playing what seem to be quite especially when we get to Act 5, there are some quite interesting ways of playing a very pivotal line in this play. Yes. Yeah. But yes, uh, we, we then move on to scene 2, which is Julia and Lucetta, in which yes, we find out that Julia is being wooed by a number of men. I, I really like in this particular scene this whole idea of what do you think of this man? Oh yes, he's he's got a lot of money. This one, ooh, he's pretty good looking. <laughs> yes. And we see a running theme where Julia quite clearly has her mind on something. And she's asking Lucetta for advice, but clearly she just wants her own decisions echoed for her. Oh yes, def definitely very much a uh this is a oh, oh, but you think Proteus is the best, don't you? Oh, well. <laughs> yes, yeah, like Julius says, and wouldst thou have me cast my love on him? And Lucetta says, I, if you thought your love not cast away. So it's like, well, if you want him, do it. So she's saying, I'm not going to take your decision for you. Don't make it seem as if I've given you this decision. Yeah, if you don't think it's a regret, fine. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, Lucetta either gives her the letter, you know, they're, they're, with this letter from Proteus, it's picked up, thrown on the ground, torn up. I forgot the stage directions surrounding it, but the basic idea is that whenever Julia gets it, she throws it away and she eventually tears it up. And according and, to Frank, and then she again, falls to the ground doing the yes, whole... kissing it. Is this perhaps the codifier or even the creation of this trope? of the ripping up of a note and then rushing back to pick up all the little pieces to try and read it. I couldn't find a previous case of this being in a story. I'll admit I can't imagine a another case of this, so I can't be a judge on that. Yeah, I, I will be interested to 
here if anyone finds something that happened before I, here. But I couldn't find anything um, in my little bit of research that showed another another scene before the late 15th century in which someone tears up a letter and then goes back. And not only goes back, but goes, oh, I'll keep this part. This part I'm going to keep near my is it keep near my bosom or something like that? Yes. <laughs> and just kissing each kissing each name. Yeah, it's it's such oh. a recognizable scene now. But it surprised me not only to find it in here, but from what I can find, this might be the first case. And with the advent of email, it might be one of the last. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, so she's on, as we said, she's on the ground. She's reading the scraps of the letter, kissing it. And then Lucetta walks in and it's like, oh, no, you didn't see me doing this. It's like that scene in Space Spaceballs where Darth Helmet is playing with his dolls. Like, don't come in without knocking. Don't come in without knocking. Yes. <laughs> so love. So, and as, you know, as Valentine's comments earlier on, well, you know, love makes you act like a fool. It has made Julia act like a fool. Frankly, the, Julia is the one whose actions under love actually mirror the criticisms of love given earlier on is she doesn't do anything immoral she just acts unreasonably she acts like a fool and she gets a lot of pain for it later on so she is the one whose valentine's criticisms actually are directed towards indirectly of course uh, just in general you know this is our first time meeting julia how are we meant to view her so clearly, or I say clearly, maybe there are some productions which do this a different way. She seems to be young, inexperienced with love. She still has that adolescent view of love where she seems to be both attracted and repulsed by the object of her affections. So how yes, do you view Julia? I, I think it's very important to notice that she's also presented as someone who is worthy of love and someone who is well sought after like loving julia would make sense you know this is why all these men love her and all of these men want her affections she she is someone to be looked up to and i i think it's really setting up to hammer home how stupid proteus is that th this isn't you you had a country girl who no one really cares too much about back home it's you had julia Come on, Julia, the, the girl the whole town wants. You're ignoring that? <laughs> I think that's the kind of Julia we're supposed to have in our head based on this scene. Yes. Well, we get to scene three, and this is one of the main pushes of the plot. So Proteus's father, Antony, Antonius, I forgot, I forget his name, I forget, yeah. but and his servant Pantheos, cool name, <laughs> they're saying, oh, us. Proteus, he, he needs to go out into the world. He needs to have his gap year. He needs to see the world. And you know, this is, seems to be setting up a division between public life and private life, saying he needs to go off into uh, the court. He needs to joust. He needs to talk with noblemen. He needs to be a public individual talking with other men, which obviously pulls him away from his love with Julia, which is taking him away from uh, his, uh, you know, private happiness. So it's a, pushing a man into the public world. Now, ironically, I think, I, so Antonia says, and, ha and how he cannot be a perfect man. 
not being tried and tutored in the world. Now, it does seem that the problem here is that the problem in the play starts from Proteus being tried by the world and failing that trial. So the reason why he turns into such a monster is because, fr frankly, traveling, seeing a woman like Sylvia makes him turn into a betraying monster. It could be that, or you could see it as Proteus has grown up. He has learnt to stop being a child. Um, you know, d depending on how you view where Proteus ends up in the end of the play, if he has ended up a monster or if he has ended up someone who has had to come to terms with what was already in his personality. It, it, it's, it's a thought. My biggest problem with this scene is it just goes on for too long. This is a scene that I think in later Shakespeare's he would have had down in one third of the time. He wouldn't have wasted so much time on this conversation. Yes, this is a very short play, and yet it does have a lot of padding in it. It does feel that way, doesn't it? It, it, it rushes some things, and in others it just drags. And just one more note on this particular scene. How do you view the fact that Proteus, you know, his father says, you're going off to sea, you're going off to travel, and Proteus never mentions that he's just gotten betrothed to someone. Now, just a betrothal in this time period is sort of, it, it's a bit stronger than engagement is nowadays, but it's a lot less than marriage in that time period. So, but he's gotten betrothed, I think, to, to Julia at this point, or a bit later on. Um, but how do you view the fact that he never seems to mention the letter? He, like he says, thus have I shunned the fire for fear of burning. I, I, I've not given him my letter. And drench me in the sea where I am drowned. I fear to show my father Julia's letter, lest he should take a exception to my love. And with the vantage of mine excuse, hath he accepted most against my love. Now, if we're going to put on our what would happen in real life hat, which, you know, is not really the best way to view art. But it's very easy to think, well, surely he could have just said, no, no, father, I love this girl. Can I just stay a few months more? Can I just like get to know her a bit more before I go off? Suggest that perhaps there's a whole other story we don't know about, about Julia and Proteus and whether or not their relationship is acceptable. Uh, yes, um, yeah. According to Lucetta, it's definitely not an acceptable relationship and that she's most likely punching down by being with him. But it might not be a one-way street. It might be that um, Proteus's father would say, no, not, not that girl. <laughs> it could be yeah, that... Yeah. It is the sort of thematic concerns that later actually get explored in Romeo and Juliet. Ah, oh, well, maybe. That is a... Okay. Ah, oh, that seems like <laughs> a, good, a good way to view it. I'd, I'd, say, I'd say that I'd wonder how this would be acted out, perhaps, but, but I'd say that that's a way to view it. In, in um, adaptations that I was able to see, uh, I've... I found that most people acted it out as simply, yeah, for some reason, unknown and unexplored, he wishes to hide Julia from his father. That it's specifically about the relationship between his father and Julia, whatever the reason. Well, that seems reasonable enough. So now we move on to Act 2. Act two, where this is where the actual main crack to the story comes up. We've had the inciting incident, and now we have the act where Proteus 
goes down in goes down into his heart of darkness. I think that's the correct use of the term. But we start with Valentine singing, Now I'm a believer, not a trace of doubt in my mind, saying, Oh God, I love Sylvia. I love Sylvia. I do like that in this case, we have a jump forward in time. That It could be quite acceptable that Valentine has fallen in love with Sylvia over time. Ah, yes. Um, I don't think it's ever actually mentioned that it's like the first time I saw her, I fell hard. And there is a suggestion that he and uh, when Sylvia arrives on the scene at the beginning here, um, that they've known each other for a little bit of time. So I, yes. I, I do, I do like that. This is a very, a very different way of doing things in compared to a lot yes. of other plays. Yes, as long as it happens off stage, you know, just assume that they did their flirting, they did their getting to know each other then. Something happening off screen is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes you can get rid of a lot of pointless and boring, um, you know, getting us up to the stage where this will be believable. <laughs> and so we have, and as you said, it seems that Speed very much agrees with um, Valentine beforehand that love makes people act a bit stupid. So, because love is blind, oh, that you had mine eyes, or your own eyes had the lights they were want to have when you chid at Sir Proteus for going unguarded. This, this is perhaps one of my favourite scenes in the play, is this particular one in which Speed points out how in love Valentine is. Yes. Um, uh, more than Speed um, and his monologue, which I love, which is, you know, by these marks... I find you are in love. You, you know, you you relish a love song. You you walk like you have pestilence. You sigh like a schoolboy that has forgotten his alphabet. That that's the one I really liked. Um, of what is it exactly? To sigh like a schoolboy that had lost his ABC. To weep like a young wench that had buried her gram grandam. Um, I I I really like that. I like that it was fun, but. I like even more when he picks up on this great little scene with Sylvia and Valentine in which Sylvia has convinced Valentine to write a love letter to himself. And it's yeah, it, it just shows how clever this woman is and how great this woman is. And that Valentine, while being in love with her, doesn't even realise how amazing she is. Yes, yes that, that thing about, you know... He seems to be absolutely oblivious to the fact that um, this letter was actually intended for him. Uh, how do we view this? Do we view it as him just being stupid for comic effect? Or, you know, I, I view this as him as a sign of his quality, that he is so humble that he cannot imagine this lady would like him. That's how so, I, I viewed it. I, I viewed it as he was doing this because he loves her. He couldn't imagine that she loved him back. Yes. And I um, view this as sort of making him seem good in comparison to Proteus. Because later on, Sylvia saying, I hate you, Proteus. Go away, Proteus. And Proteus saying, well, if I just keep on at it, maybe she'll like me. But no, we have here her showing all her affection, well, you know, quite clear matters of affection towards um, Valentine, almost directly saying to him, this letter is for you. Read the letter. I am giving this letter to you. I love you. Yes. <laughs> but he, he's just saying, oh, no, no, I, I'm too lowly. I'm too, I'm too pathetic. I, <laughs> it can't be for me. No. But on the other hand, yes, he 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 he's doing it because he loves her. He he likes the idea of, well, well, she's too good for me, so I'll simply be her servant. 
Yes, and even to the extent of helping what he believes is another man get to her, so, which is certainly the exact opposite of what Proteus does. Yes, it does really show that Valentine's the good guy in this story. And I, I think Speed, you know, I know you're not a huge fan of Speed, but I think Speed is there specifically to show how good a guy Valentine is, that his role in this play especially you know as the servant of valentine is to point out what a good guy his guy is uh, yes i mean I, I will say that i prefer speed when he's actually talking to other characters rather than when he's talking to lance <laughs> so, I, I actually i actually agree i think speed is at his best with valentine yes it's not it's not that entertaining to see speed outsmart an idiot uh, yeah exactly <laughs> Yes, it's like beating up a child. You know, it's yes, you win, but it doesn't actually make you look strong, does it? No. Uh, but you know, you mentioned how you know the Sylvia came up, and you see, oh, she's so clever, she's so in control. I'd say that uh, the way that Sylvia is betrayed very much affects our view of Proteus, or at least Proteus's initial reaction to her, her his, how sympathetic his initial impulse towards her is. Because we don't actually see that much of her beforehand. We see her in this scene being this sort of, oh, um, uh, 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 her actions actually remind me of that line from, you know, the Prince song, Kiss, where he says, I just want some of your spare time. Where that's, that's sort of her attitude towards, um, towards uh, Valentine, where it's like, oh, you'll, you'll get my free... I, I'm a woman, I'm a powerful woman, I have my own things to do. And if you're lucky, you'll get my free time. I'm not even going to bother writing a letter to you. You do the letter for me. I'm not going to make any efforts for you. That sort of cool attraction to him. Um, but I'm wondering how attractive we are meant to find her and how attractive, therefore, and how immediately alluring are we meant, is Proteus meant to find her? How sympathetic are we to view Proteus's initial reaction to Sylvia? Uh, how how do you view it based on I, our initial introduction? I viewed it more when you view the first scene we get with Valentine and Valentine and Sylvia compared to the uh, Proteus. Is that Valentine fell in love with Sylvia the person, whereas Pier Proteus is just seeing this beautiful princess. She's she's not princess, whatever the daughter of a duke would be, but. Um, a, a princess. He f he falls in love with a beautiful princess, whereas um, this scene with Valentine has shown that as much as he doesn't get what is happening, he gets who she is. Um, and that there's something deeper there. And, and that's, that's how I read it, was that there's this this difference in the two men and their view of the woman. I think we're, we as the audience are supposed to view Sylvia in a quite positive light. I I, I think um, Shakespeare consistently puts women by by the standards of his time, I should say, he consistently um, brings out women as look at how smart they are. They're not just pretty, they're smart. <laughs> um, it, it's a step forward for his time is what I'll say about that. Uh, and I, I think I think part of it might be the fact that we're talking about a time in which Elizabeth I is in power. 
Um, and Shakespeare's definitely uh, sucks up to, sucks up to the queen and then king on a regular basis. Um, but I also think it is we are talking at about a time where women are. This is one of the moments in feminist history where we see a, a step forward in the role of women in society. I, I think, considering these are the first women that Shakespeare has written, assuming this is his first plays written, the, the Julia and Sylvia both stand out as generally positive characters. Um, I'm quite disappointed by how little Julia we actually get and how nothing she does seems to actually affect the plot. <laughs> but that's how <laughs> yes. I um, She ends up being a commentator, which, you know, in a play where quite a lot of the comedy and quite a lot of, you know, you like Speed and Lance, they don't particularly affect the plot. But no. They are there as commentary. So Julia, she adds to the play the texture of the play by being commentary on what happens. She, she isn't I, very plot yes. important. But I'd say that narrative agency, narrative importance is not necessarily the only basis on which we can judge characters. No. Whereas I think Sylvia is, you know, has a lot of importance in so many ways. So I, I, I quite enjoyed her introduction. Oh, on the note of her introduction, on a well, not quite her introduction, but on another note, Charlotte Lennox, who was one of I think Jane Austen's favorite writers, so that's something to say for her. She has quite a different view of Sylvia. So she writes down: she is introduced, flirting from room to room, followed by two of her lovers, and laughing equally at the man she favors and him she rejects, slyly inciting them to quarrel. And when she has set them together by the ears, enjoys the jest till the good prince, her father, comes in to part them. So from the way she phrases that, she's sort of saying that, well, this is sort of a coquette, a, a village tease. <laughs> so uh, her charm, at least, it doesn't really translate to everyone, I'd say. Uh, so now we go to scene two of act two. And this is Julia and Proteus confessing their love to each other and exchanging rings of steadfastness with each other, which, you know, in these sorts of plays, the only time a ring like this will be exchanged is when one of them is going to get it lost. We see it again in Merchant of Venice. We, that here it ring. is again. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, you know, we have just Shakespeare heavily layering on the foreshadowing. Here is my hand for my true constancy. And when that hour o'er slips me in the day wherein I sigh not, Julia, for thy sake, the next ensuing hour some foul mischance torment me for my love's forgetfulness. So really I often wonder saying, if that's supposed to be a meta joke too, that next hour. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> it, it seems it uh, seems like a very meta joke. Uh, and Shakespeare yes. is inclined later on to pr produce those sorts of jokes. Yes, yes. He's... I wonder, you know, so I'm always wondering just how much in this time period they read into meta jokes, whether it was just a little a little joke, like turning to the audience and saying, you know, you lot are idiots or something like that, or if it is, or if the meta jokes ever have a deeper meaning in this time period. I mean, at least with, um, what was it? Ah, oh, the Night of the Burning Pestle. Maybe if we branch out from Shakespeare, we could do Night of the Burning Pestle. That is a, a massive meta joke. It's about 
people trying to put on a romantic comedy, but two middle-class members of the audience keep saying, no, no, we want a story about knights and wizards. So, and so it's a, it's a commentary on the audience's taste. Um, but, you know, some, I, I want, I just, uh, in some, I just sort of wonder how deep meta jokes went in this period. Yeah. Scene yeah. three. Pan- this is a Lance scene. Panthea <laughs> tells Lance to go after Proteus's master. Not much to say about this scene, I must say. Do you have anything to say about this scene? It is your standard comic relief scene that could have turned up in any play ever, especially all the stuff about the dog. I I find there's a lot of great lines in it in terms of comedy. Um, A lot of people don't like Shakespearean comedy. They're like, yep, it's so old, it's no longer funny. Um, I loved the playing around with tides and tides. Uh, um, and, and the constant looping back to that same joke. Um, I do love when jokes loop back on themselves. So it's fun to me. It's nothing else but a fun little piece of comic relief. And I kind of think one of the problems with this play, I've I've said before, is the structure in that we get these moments of comic relief early in the play, but they become more and more sparse as the play becomes darker and darker. And I think this play is a good example of Shakespeare not yet being able to do both serious and funny at the same time in the same text. I don't think he pulls it off very well. So you don't view this as being like black comedy, do you? (laughs) The later parts. No, no. I, 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 I struggle to see the second half of this play as black comedy um i'm sure there there have been people who have attempted it and maybe even succeeded at it but i don't see the later parts as black comedy and mainly because it isn't set up as a black comedy yes um i mean i i I think yeah i think that is probably the biggest criticism i have of uh, of this play is that the tonal shifts don't work as well as he pulls off in later plays. You know, um, Midsummer Night's Dream gets a bit dark at times, but it works. Um, Romeo and Juliet adds the comedy to an otherwise non-funny play really well. This play, when there's not comedy, there's darkness, it, it doesn't feel like it's still part of the same play. Ah, oh, yes. I mean, I, will, I would say that when it comes to judging tone of dark comedy, there's always going to be a bit of a, a matter of taste, a matter that of... That is um, true. Like, for instance, you know, you hear those stories about when Franz Kafka was reading out his novels and his short stories to his friends, and everyone was doubled over laughing at them. And, you know, at least most English speakers say, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> those aren't comedies. Quite possibly, as, as we show together in terms of what we enjoy in the comedy of this particular play yes <laughs> yes uh, i have to say i i am a sucker for a number of the um base uh the the, the wordy jokes um when lance and speed meet later on there's a joke about being upstanding or standing up um yes. and you know that tickles my fancy just as much as the dog being tied in this scene Yes, is this the scene with the joke? Um, 
It's like, where's your master ship? My master ship went out. My master's ship went out Thursday or something like that. Yes. 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 I, you know, throughout this thing, I've been quoting people and I have, uh, you know, from, and I'm using the uh, Shakespeare, the critical heritage. Now, most of the critical heritage, there's lots of editors quibbling over how to edit a certain line. And apparently there's a lot of argument on whether master, whether there was a joke there or not, whether they should put a, a space between master and ship in the second time it's used. So apparently even early commentators were saying, is there a joke here? Is there not a joke here? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, think there see, was. My personal opinion is there was. Yes. Um, mainly because Shakespeare was fully aware of when jokes like that could occur, that I don't think he would have missed the the chance to have it be a joke. Yes, and scene four. Now, like, I keep on saying this is the crux of the plot, but now we get to the crux of the plot. Uh, <laughs> where we, so this is the scene that Charlotte Lennox was referring to. We have Furio and Valentine, twin suitors, trying to outwit, snipe at each other, <laughs> and um, trying, while well, Sylvia's watching on. Maybe she's feeling quite pleased at having these two men fighting over her. Maybe, depending on the production, she's not. <laughs> How do you view this? Oh, I, I like what's happening in this scene. Um, I think my favourite line in this scene is, my jerkin is a doublet. Uh, for some reason, that just cracks me up. Um, yeah. it, it shouldn't, but it does. Just, just this guy insulted by someone being in, insulting his dress. Um. And he gets quite insulted. It says, it says, why angry do you change colour? Be- because Valentine insulted his jacket. <laughs> uh, it, it cracks me. Um, it, it, it's, it cracks me up the same as um, do you bite your thumb at me in the beginning of Romeo and Juliet. There's something about men bickering, which is hilarious. Ah, uh, so then we have um, Proteus, he's about to arrive, and Valentine, he praises Proteus to the Duke, saying, and in a word, for far behind his worth comes all the praises that I now bestow. He is complete in feature and in mind with all the good grace to grace a gentleman. Now, I didn't know why he was doing this. Is this just part of society at the time that if someone mentions your friend you then have to talk him up as much as possible was he trying to hope that proteus will then be accepted into court easier i i never got convinced as to why valentine is doing this i mean it's just basic networking you you you, have, you hope you have friends who talk you up and hopefully your friends will talk you up there's a lot of talking up though it isn't just a oh yeah he's a good guy Yes, he's I mean, trying to talk this guy up as if he's the greatest gentleman you will ever meet. I, I, it's one of those things where depending on the time period and depending on the, the customs of politeness, it, it's like nowadays, you have to call something great. You say, oh, this show is great. If you say it was good, people think, oh, it wasn't that good. Now, you have to say it's great, otherwise that's, that's how people know it's good. So maybe it's that if you don't say, oh, he's amazing, he's the greatest guy ever, people think, oh, you're, you're subtly telling me he's not that good. It could be. It's like all those people who get annoyed when I um, rate things four out of five stars. 
because isn't five stars perfect, not good? <laughs> uh, no, th- I... th- that may, might be my problem. <laughs> it's, 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 that's the reason why YouTube moved from a, a star system to a like or dislike, because people were just doing uh, five stars or one star. <laughs> there, was no, there was no in between there. I, I always find it interesting when you look at things like Amazon reviews and p- people are ripping into a product saying, this product is horrible, I'll never buy it again. Four stars. Yes. <laughs> I remember I, I had a language teacher and he was telling me about, like he, he because he was rather forceful or in, and persistent in trying to get a student to pronounce a word correctly, she broke down crying. And then he said, aren't you left me a bad review? Only three stars. It's like, you made her cry and she gave you three stars. That's quite good. (laughs) So back to the play. Uh, We have, so now Proteus comes in and he's introduced Sylvia. and, uh, And Sylvia mentions that, you know, because Proteus has left Julia, saying that now his eyes have been taken away from his mistress. Um, Sylvia comments that but like that now she, Julia, hath enfranchised them, uh, his eyes, upon some other pawn for fealty. Now her first comment about Proteus is sort of hinting at fidelity and also hinting at the object that will, that, uh, that um, uh, Proteus quite pointlessly throws away on her. Yeah, I think it's clear that all the characters besides valentine because valentine's such a good guy all the characters understand that proteus is still a petty child except for perhaps julia because she's blinded by love and valentine every other character seems to give the indication that proteus isn't this great guy yes and i'd say that you know you mentioned blinded by love but i think as the play goes on at least for julia her character arc it seems is that she's no longer blinded by love. She is merely, at the end, she's, she knows exactly what Proteus is. Um, she's more yeah. just compelled by love. Yes, I, th- I think that definitely is her arc. Um, and I've, in looking at adaptations, it's interesting. I've, I've seen adaptations which suggest that she continues to want to be with him out of some sort of obligation almost, as if it's face saving or something. I mean, they, they are, that, that could be done because they are betrothed. Yeah, they're, is, they're betrothed. She, she has made her choice and now it's going to look bad if she goes back on her choice. Yes, yes. Um, and yes. And that their, their story, the, the end of their story is not a happy one for them. That neither of them yeah. are happy with it either. I, I think we as an audience today wouldn't find their relationship happy even if the characters found it happy but i'm not convinced that shakespeare's audiences were supposed to find them as a happy ever after yes this is one of those um like i I was talking about my uh my professor dr peter groves whose view was that you need to find um, the exact opposite of what the meaning seems to be. And his attitude towards Shakespeare's plays was that always there are two plays. There was one play aimed at the groundlings, which had rather conventional ideals, rather conventional uh, surface-level meanings. So you you came to a romantic comedy. They're the ones who came for the dog. 
Yes. <laughs> and then there is the the upper audience. These are the gallery audience. I think that's the correct um, theater term. Um, and these are the people who who spent what was essentially the equivalent of an opera ticket. These are the people who, you know, in order to please them, you know, the crowd pleasing thing for people who think of themselves are intelligent is to feel more intelligent than the groundlings. It's like, oh, these groundlings think they're seeing a romantic comedy, but no, I'm clever enough to see that this is actually quite cynical. So that, so you know, perhaps it, it, in a sense, it can be both true. Like the, we have a a happily ever after where Proteus he's done something silly, but now he's back with his lady love. But up top, we have people saying, "Oh no, my my intelligent media literacy brain sees that these people are actually um, terrible for each other." <laughs> that 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 makes sense. Yes, and so. When Proteus is first introduced to um, Sylvia, they have this sort of a parody of the excessive politeness that you have in society, where Sylvia says, too low a mistress, or so high a servant. And Proteus says, not so, sweet lady, but who mean a servant to have a look of such a worthy mistress. And Valentine says, leave off discourse of disability. So she says, okay, look, this is a bit much even for me. Don't, don't be so humble to each other. I read this as Sylvia mocking him, but him not picking up on it. What do uh, you think? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I'd say that that's possible, but... Knowing how she treated Valentine with the whole love letter thing, yeah. I, from that scene on, I always gave her lines a little bit of extra intelligence in their reading. Like, yes. if, you're, if you're smart enough to come up with this whole I'm making you write your own love letter... I think she's smart enough that, yeah, she, she's mocking Proteus, and Proteus just is too childish to get that. On that, on that line, I mean, I, I'd come up with a, a different interpretation, not that I'd say that your interpretation is quite a good one. However, I'd say that maybe what's going on here is that it, it's intentional on her part, where, you know, towards people she actually might want to flirt with, like a Valentine or Thurio, she does take this high and mighty, let me play the cruel mistress here. But towards people she has no interest in, she's just going to do the regular sort of, she's not going uh, to pretend. Yeah, going yeah. To, she's going to use regular politeness towards Yep, her. she's going to just stick to society, to what society yeah. expects of her. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I like that as well. Yeah, um, and also, you know, she's only going to pretend, she's not going to pretend, she's not going to use this politeness towards people she likes. She's not going to say, oh, I'm so much below you. No, if, if she thinks she has a chance with him, no, no, I'm high above you. Don't think you can just dominate me. I'm high above I you. I think the interpretations I've seen on stage have always uh, have been of your interpretation. They've been, this, this is a woman going through the motions. Ah, uh, yes. And so and now we have now we have this next scene, and this, you know, at least to me, I don't I don't like the next scene, which is a dialogue between Proteus and Valentine. Oh, thank you very much, but you're missing. Uh, are we not missing speed and let's? Okay, you you summarize this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, there is there is not much here. Other than them discussing. Okay, C C, lovely. Yes. Uh, look, <laughs> the, 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 I I I will admit this is my least favorite scene between Speed and Let's. Um, it's got the good jokes. It's got the couple of good jokes, but it really it doesn't it doesn't sit as well in the comedy. And it's like the further we get along in the play, 
the less well the scenes are written with these comedians. It's and and it almost makes me feel like are there less is there less comedic relief because Shakespeare got bored with the comedy he was writing at the time? Or maybe yes, <laughs> perhaps. Or he he doesn't quite know how to like even how to in continue. Tactics, just, yes, I mean he doesn't at this point know how to do that vast gap in tones like he does in Macbeth, where he has a, you know, after killing someone, we move to a guy talking about erectile dysfunction caused by alcohol. So, and of course, it, this it, scene also doesn't sit very well because it contains your usual uh, racism. Yes. <laughs> and is this, whole... the one where where, is this the one where Lance keeps on referring to Jews? Is that it? Yes. 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 <laughs> I, I um, remember in one of the commentaries I was reading, there was just one note for that, which is that uh, Lance seems inordinately obsessed with Jewish people. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it 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 actually brings up the little question of okay, so is this in here because Shakespeare knows it's an easy joke, or is it here as an indication of how backwards Lance is? Yes, I'd say that anything. I think Lance it's the former. But today, I would play it as the latter. Yes, yes. Uh, but when it, so, so you mentioned that I was leaving off the Lance and Speed scene, but in at least in my edition of the play, this comes after the conversation between Valentine and Proteus. Is it different in your version? Uh, no, I probably just got mixed it up, mixed it up in my notes. Yes, because I, I was wondering about that, because at least in terms of structure, I find what happens a bit odd, because this scene where Valentine and Proteus were in here, Valentine leaves and then Proteus... Has You're right, Valentine and Proteus is before that scene. I just forgot how friggin' long scene four is. Ah, yes. Scene you, four is be. so long. <laughs> yes, you, you, were th- you, you just automatically in your head said, there must be a division in here somewhere. Yeah, right? yes. yeah that's probably what happens. Yes. So, you know, to go back to the start of it, Valentine says, he's now, he's just saying, you know, I'm a believer in love. I, Proteus, but that life is altered now. <laughs> I have done penance for contemning love, whose high imperious thoughts have punished me with bitter fast, with penitential groans, with nightly tears and daily hearts or sighs. For in revenge of my contempt of love, love hath chased sleep from my enthralled eyes and made them watches of mine own heart's sorrow. So... Really, just just the um, I not a trace of doubt in his mind anymore. And the part that happens next is sort of the part that I dislike about this this scene. My this is frankly my least favorite part in the scene because of how I view it as being. It seems to actively work against a an understanding view of Proteus of making Proteus's change seem natural. Because is this a monologue? The no, not, the mon- not the monologue, it's the lead up to the monologue where okay. you know, Valentine, Valentine is saying, I love her, please praise my love, Sylvia. And Proteus is saying, no, no, um, obviously you love her, but I love my mistress. So basically the implication is that it seems that Proteus is, is, is now the more mature person here. He's reached a more mature level of love where he's saying, oh yes, I love Julia above anything in the world. She's the most perfect woman in the world to me. But of course, that's only because I love her. Um, uh, just as you love your Sylvia above anything in the world, I love my Julia above anything in the world. Like at one point he says, have I not reason to prefer my own? So this seems that he is showing a more uh, um, mature vision of love. 
uh, and it seems that he seems to um, understand that he, he doesn't seem to love Sylvia at all at this point. Well, and yet, this is I actually read this. I read this specifically because he never actually says the name Julia. I read this as Proteus trying to convince himself. Um, so oh, th- th- there's the line in which, um, uh, what is it? Have I not reason to prefer mine own? I always took that as like a turning point of a, a, a Proteus actually going, oh, well, Valentine didn't like Julia, but like Sylvia, maybe maybe Valentine's got a point. Like, a, oh, wait, maybe maybe my friend just has better taste and I should have better taste. And, and it continues huh. on that I'm never in, fully convinced Proteus loves Sylvia as much as he wants Sylvia as his own because other people want Sylvia. Yes, but I, I, I think that's a good reading of it. That his his maybe his attempts to keep things in proportion are actually showing that he doesn't love her that much. If you can keep things in proportion, you don't love properly. So maybe that's it. Yeah, yeah. But it's, uh, it seems that even Proteus is a bit um, confused about why he loves Sylvia so much. So even as one heat. Expe- uh, one heat another expels whereas one nail by strength drives out another so the remembrance of my former love is by a newer object quite forgotten is it mine eye or valentine's praise her true yeah. affection or my false transgression that makes me reasonless to reason thus so, I, I'm not, so even he doesn't seem to quite know exactly what it is that makes him want her so much yeah. or maybe it's just um, as I said a young guy coming out into Los Angeles, finally meeting a woman that, at least on the surface, seems to be so much more desirable than his country sweetheart. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I do feel very much that that this is a, this is where it comes less about romantic love and more about, oh, this is the thing I must have. Yes. <laughs> And so I, I'd say that there are when, his final monologue in this scene and his monologue in the next scene. I think the difference mainly between them is that in this monologue, he does seem to realize, oh, this is a bit bad. I should not be feeling this way. So yeah. if I can check my erring love, I will. But he ends by saying, if not to compass her, I'll use my skill. So if I can hold back from temptation, I'll, I will do that. However, if I'm going to fall, I may as well try to succeed. So, but, so we've, we've, you've mentioned the Lantern Speed scene, and actually I want to talk about this. Why do you think that Shakespeare puts in Lance Speed and the dog? Why does he... Because the next scene is just Proteus having another monologue. So why I think it's speed... for that exact reason that we needed a time skip. And this is our, So I want to show Proteus going from considering to Proteus having fully drinked the Kool-Aid. So, uh, so Proteus is monologuing again. Now, talk, so this is scene six. Uh, he's monologuing again, talking himself into his course of action. Uh, this uh, this uh, monologue, 
I, I remember someone saying that Shakespeare is perfect at showing us thought in action. And this is one of those where you can see that he's trying to find a way to rationalize himself into a course of action that he knows he probably shouldn't be going for, but he know, but he also feels that he is going to go for anyway. And so he's trying to find a way to justify it to himself. Yeah, it's interesting to see that um, from the beginning, Shakespeare was good at showing characters rationalizing what they've already decided to do. Yes. Unheedful yeah. vows may heedfully be broken. So that's one way to look at it. <laughs> Yes. Um, ah, and he wants wit that once resolved will to learn his wit to exchange the bad for better. <laughs> but then he goes back to say, fie, fie, unreverence tongue. So he's saying, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing wrong. I'm using, I'm not doing this correctly. I should, I need to stop doing this. <laughs> but then by the end of course, he ends up saying that, uh, oh, and you know, there is a, <laughs> again, the, the, uh, the Shakespearean era distaste for dark skin coming out where he says, for love is still precious in itself and Sylvia, witness heaven that made her fair, shows Julia but a swarthy Ethiop. So, you know, <laughs> lovely statement there, lovely. <laughs> but um, I remember in the um, Much Ado About Nothing by Joss Whedon, where I think one of the characters says, you have proved yourself a swarthy Ethiop. And you have a character, a black woman in the background, just opening her eyes wide at that statement. So that's one way to justify these statements in a modern setting. Just have have a black guy in the background say, "Weird." So now moving on to scene seven. Uh, I think this is the last scene. Oh yes, yeah, so is the last scene of the act. Yes. So now we have an immediate contrast between masculine infidelity and feminine constancy. Because we have Julia saying that she is a true devoted pilgrim and that she, she is willing to go out and travel the world just to get to Proteus. Uh, a true devoted pilgrim is not weary to measure kingdoms with, with his feeble steps. Much less shall see that hath love's wings to fly and when the flight is made to one so dear of such divine perfection as Sir Proteus. So uh, he's really layering on the dramatic irony thick here. Oh, yeah. And I think it's the perfect time, too, because at this point, the I, at least, partly forgot that Julia even existed. Like, yes. she, she, was, she was just an idea in Proteus's head. And it's nice to remind us that, no, Julia is an actual person with actual thoughts, feelings, and actions. And yes. I don't think she's given enough time in the play. I don't think this was intentional on Shakespeare's behalf. Maybe in later plays he would do something like that intentionally, but I think in this case it was a, oh, yeah, now we need to involve, involve Julia somehow, so I'll put this in now. <laughs> yes. And, and we also have Lucetta here, again, appearing to be the most reasonable character where, you know, Julia's saying, I'm going to go off, I'm going to travel the world, and Lucetta says, a better forbear till Proteus make return. It's like, you know, don't, you don't need to do this. Don't go out wandering the world. This isn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, in this and case, also, she's very reasonable. Yes, and also, and I think this sort of shows the um, the contrast, or perhaps the similarity between Julia and Proteus, because both of them are driven and compelled unreasonably by their love. <laughs> so, but the difference is the object of the love of Proteus, his passionate, in, uncontrollable love 
pushes him away from the proper object of his love, um, pushes him into infidelity. But for Julia, later on, her passionate, uncontrollable, irrational love leads her towards the object of her faith, but also it leads her towards an object of faith that does appear to be, even to herself, an arsehole. So both of them are driven to irrational ends by their love. That's quite true. Uh, so, you know, just one last comment. Oh, here, here we get Shakespeare's first, a woman needs to go out into the world, let's address her as a boy. So, not like a woman, for I would prevent the loose encounters of lascivious men. <laughs> so, yes. you know, had to get that in there, even at the beginning. He likes, what well, Shakespeare, he likes a boy dressed as a girl, dressed as a boy. It seems to have been a very, very popular conceit at the time. It was clear that other plays were already doing it before him, that it was a fun part of entertainment. Um, audiences got a kick out of the idea. It's not quite as bad as, I, I can't remember which one it is, but when he, one of his later plays, it actually has the male actor break the fourth wall to talk about, hey, if I was playing this girl playing a guy, I would do this instead. I can't remember which one it is, but one of them does it. I can't remember either. That's Act 2 done. So Scene 3. Act 3, Scene (laughs) 1. Proteus convinces the Duke that he's just looking out for him and looking out for his daughter. This is the scene where Proteus, he's not merely liking an unfortunate object, but now he is actually acting on his unfaithful thoughts. Yeah, let's just throw Valentine under the bus, or in this case, out of the city. Yes, yes, let's... uh, Like, banishment, that sounds... uh, It's an interesting... It's an interesting punishment, which I'm sure was a lot more serious in the olden days. Well, isn't that what happened to Dante? Yes, yes, he was kicked out, and I think... I think he, he was kicked out, at least he believed, because the Pope was weighed in on it, which is why he hates that Pope so much that he says, I know he's not dead yet, but he's in hell at the moment. He's going to be in hell. <laughs> yes. Oh, and also Ovid. He spent the last years of his life saying, no, please, let me back into Rome. Please, I, I hate these barbarians I'm around. <laughs> it does sound like uh, for a gentleman, banishment could be the worst thing that could happen to you. Yes. Because we, we that's how good kill. life is as a gentleman. Yes. We can't kill such a lovely gentleman, but we know we'll get rid of him. <laughs> so Proteus, he's trying to convince um, the Duke that, you know, Valentine, he's a wrong and he's trying to get your daughter without your consent. So he's like, I know you have determined to bestow her on Thurio, whom your gentle daughter hates. And I like that line, whom your gentle daughter hates, because he's trying to say, I know your wishes, sir. Um, and Valentine is going against your wishes. But also, I, I'm trying to make you remember that your daughter hates this guy, so maybe you should try to find someone else for her. So he's, yes. Even as he's undermining Valentine, he wants a way to, uh, to, to wedge himself in there. Plus, it looks like it's a win-win to get rid of Valentine. Yes. And with the comment about... Okay, so the Duke reveals that his, he has his daughter literally locked away in a tower, fairy tale style. 
I, I wonder if this was actually a realistic thing they did at the time, or if this is just the sort of thing that happens in, you know, romantic fairy tale like place. It does very much sound like a fairy tale thing, doesn't it? Yes, the only thing missing is her having very long hair. Uh, <laughs> but then again, so does the whole I get banished and become the leader of a tribe of rebels. Are they rebels or are they just criminals? Oh, yes, whatever. He's the new Dread Pirate Roberts. That's all I know. Proteus says, oh no, don't think your tower's going to protect your daughter. He's got a ladder. So... <laughs> Boiled! <laughs> yes. It's like, they, I hadn't accounted for ways of getting up a tower. <laughs> so the Duke... But then there's this scene where either we have the Duke trying to weasel the information out of uh, Valentine and either the, I, there's ways to view this scene where it just shows how absolutely good-natured Valentine is, or it may show something else. But the basic idea is that the Duke says, oh, no, I like a lady. Um, and, but someone says I shouldn't like her. And someone's locked her away in a tower. And I'm wondering how I can get up that tower. Do you have any ideas? And Valentine just says, oh, I actually do have an idea. You could get a ladder and you could go up to her tower. Which, is he, you know, we've... Yeah, anyone could have that idea you'd expect. Yes, yes, it's not that <laughs> intelligent. But I do like the part where it's basically um, him saying, well, how would I hide this ladder? Well, you'd use a coat. Well, can I, can I try on your coat? Oh, no, not my coat. And please don't use my coat. Oh, you can use any coat. Well, then can I use your coat? Not my coat. Please, not my coat. <laughs> and then he opens his coat. What are these things you have here? <laughs> Which, you know, this, this really could be played for comedy. I mean, I mean, depending on how this is played, I mean, my, my dissatisfaction with how Valentine acts here, you know, him falling into such an obvious trap, um, it could be played for comedy quite easily by this guy who is, you know, as stupid as only a comedy can allow, um, just walking right into this trap and being flabbergasted when, you know, he's caught red-handed. I think that part is very easy to play for comedy, but what happens next can't be which makes it a very difficult shift. Uh, and what does happen next in your mind? Uh, the, the just how he responds to f finally proving that Valentine's treacherous. Like he calls him like a base and awful slave or something like that? Yeah, he, he, he really goes off in a way that I'm not sure how you would play that for comedy. How would you act that in a comedic way? Yes, I'd say that with Shakespeare's comedies, he's not... I mean, nowadays we say, oh, you need to laugh at a comedy or it needs to be lighthearted. But um, I'd say that in Shakespeare's time, maybe they didn't have that expectation. They're just sort of not meant to have that much death in them. <laughs> they <just laughs> meant to be on... It's a comedy if people are alive at the end. <laughs> yes, it's, it has a lighter subject, a lighter subject. That's why it's, uh, that's why it's a comedy. And I'm not saying that what happens here is light. I mean, someone does try to commit rape, but, you know, there's no uh, kingdoms falling. There's no um, death, really. It's, uh, it's light, in a sense. And I find that Valentine, when he's talking about his banishment, he sort of uses that, you know, those sort of sophistical arguments uh, that, that Proteus used to justify his infidelity. But in this case, to, to justify his love for, um, for Sylvia, where he says, And why not death, rather than living torment? To die, 
is to be banished from myself. And Sylvia is myself. Banished from herself is from is self from self, a deadly banishment. So uh, how do you view this? Is this is there anything in this argument or is this just meant to be sophistry? I think it's just Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything in the argument. I I think it's very much a oh, but she is such my she is my whole life and if I'm not with her I have no life. <laughs> yes. I don't think there's then... an argument to be made there. It's the typical <laughs> typical sound of a teenage boy when a girl's broken up with him. Yes. How old are these characters meant to be, I think? Are they like in their early 20s or like late teens or something? Or even early I've got to assume late teens. I put them at the same age as Hamlet. Considering Hamlet. we're talking about the whole going off for university, going off for learning. Oh, yeah, I put, I put them in their late teens, early 20s. Yes, I remember that. I remember reading somewhere that Shakespeare, for some reason, he liked reducing the ages of characters. Like for Romeo and Juliet, these characters that they were in Shakespeare's play, they're quite explicitly like 13, 14 or something. In the original source material, they're like a few years older than that. So he likes putting younger people in these situations. He likes putting, you know, there's people who are on the cusp of puberty in these positions. Uh, so maybe that works for the kind of stories he's telling, which I can't expect an adult. I think it's more about the time in their life rather than their actual age. It's that time in your life where you're no longer allowed to be a child and you have to start being an adult. So we're going to teach you how to be an adult. It's these, the, the formative moments in life. Hmm. You know, yeah, whenever, whenever that is for the culture at the time, um, you ask the, the, the certain people today, and that means it's people in their thirties. <laughs> yeah, I remember that there was a, there's a podcast called The Dollop, and they talk about reading like the life stories of people from the 19th century, and it's always like he was a boxer, a miner, he worked five jobs to support his family, and on his 13th birthday, yeah. <laughs> but so then we have Proteus. And Valentine, you know, they're talking to her. Proteus emerges from the shadows, the sort of... And I, and I like the sort of thing he's saying here, because he's basically saying, oh, please, Valentine, cheer up, cheer up. Don't kill yourself. Uh, but he gives him this... Let me find the page. Uh, but what he's saying, it has some interesting connotations where he says, uh, cease to lament for that thou canst not help, and study help for that which thou laments. Time is the nurse and breeder of all good. Here, if thou stay, thou canst not see thy love. Besides, thy staying will abridge thy life. Hope is a lover's staff. Walk hence with that and manage it against despairing thoughts. Thy letters may be here, though thou art hence, which being writ to me shall be delivered even in the milk-white bosom of thy love. So <laughs> he's basically saying here, look, don't kill yourself, but go off and, and feel hope. Hope for this. But it's sort of like a quietistic hope. Where it's like, don't don't actually do anything to get back here. Just go off over there and, and leave it to me. I'll, I'll, go I'll go and wait. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it, it sounds a lot harsher than saying move on from her, doesn't it? Yes. Not <laughs> oh, go this. on with your life. Things will get better. You don't need her. No, go on with your life and wait. I'm sure things will get better. I'm sure she'll come back to you. <laughs> like, oh, that's that rough. That makes it darker than my interpretation of it. 
Do you think this is intentional on his part, on Proteus's part, or is it just him, you know, um, trying to figure out, oh, what's something I can do to make my sins not that bad? I think on the part of Proteus, it's like, no, this is the best thing for Valentine. I, I, he needs to have hope, otherwise he will despair and kill himself. He doesn't think about just how horrible a thing it would be. Yes. Okay, and next, the next part of this scene is Lance and Speed, so I hand it over to you. Ah, <laughs> well, um, this is a back to a better scene than the previous Speed and Lance. Um, this is the scene right where Lance says that he's in love. I must admit, I yes, don't it know. is. I yes, it. I so Lance, Lance has fallen in love. This grumpy yes. old man has fallen in love, and Speed goes through the list of all the reasons why this woman is not worth loving, and Lance has an answer for all of them. Um, and some of these are great. It's like, uh, Speed, item, she is not to be kissed fasting in respect of her breath. Lance, well, that fault may be mended with a breakfast. Read on. <laughs> and, um, oh, item, she is slow in words. Oh, villain, that set this down among her vices. To be slow in words is a woman's only virtue. So, eat them. Yeah. She is proud. Out with that too, it is Eve's legacy and cannot be turned from her. <laughs> yep. And there, there, there's, there's some really good ones. Com- very sexist ones, but very funny because. My comedy still lies in sexism for some reason. I guess I'm old. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, more hair than wit. <laughs> I said that at this time period, the kind of sexist humor that I like is the kind that even if you change the gender of the characters, would still work. <laughs> yes, like there's. I remember in Volpone, there's a woman. I forget her name, but it's, I think she's called Lady Woodby Politic or something like that. And the joke about her is that she is a dilettante who can't stop speaking and is incredibly vain, but doesn't know that everyone views her as a incredibly irritating bore. Now, obviously, those are a lot of sexist stereotypes about women of the time period. But if you change it to a man, the jokes still work. It's about yeah. a, a man. Yes. As but long as you make case, it about the individual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so- but yes, it, it is quite fun in hearing... Um, this person we've been presented as a grumpy old misanthrope is now in love and has an excuse for anything that could be wrong with the woman. Yes. Um, oh, is, do you think this is a case where this is a perhaps leading up to Julia's view of Proteus? I honestly think, and again, I get back to I being completely in disagreement with Shakespeare's structure here. I think it's a great... Um, companion piece to Valentine and Speed. Um, and I don't know why Shakespeare would want it here when we've just experienced... Maybe it's su- supposed to remind us of Valentine now that we're seeing how Proteus reacts to love, that this is a reminder of what good love looks like. Mm. That no, this is an example not... of... Yeah. Given that Lance is an idiot... I'm not exactly sure if this is an example of good love. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why I'm I, I quite enjoy the scene. I'm unconvinced about the scene in terms of what it does for the story. When do you think Shakespeare started using his clowns for actual thematic purposes? 
Good question. I always get the chronology mixed up. I I know I definitely know the best use was King Lear. Um, I remember the I, I will King die King. on the hill that King Lear's fool is the greatest fool. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I remember that someone was saying there's you can tell quite clearly when Shakespeare's approach to his fools changed when um because you know his original clown actor died a guy called will kemp and he was the sort of you know big fat i'm a dumb idiot sort of clown but then but then he, the next kind of clown this was the next generation of clown this was your alt comedy comedian the sort of guy who was sort of a misanthropic let me make wise comments in a very slanted way sort of thing and this is where we get fester from um twelfth night where we get the fool from king lear yeah. So maybe the reason why these clowns started becoming more key to the plot was just because he had a better actor. I say better, maybe just a different standard. It's different, comedy. yes, yes. We're, we're currently working... Uh, Lance is very much a proto-Falstaff. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the scene. I don't know about its inclusion in the play, but I love the scene. It, it almost feels like a scene you could cut out completely and give it to Abbott and Costello. Yes, I remember... When it comes to um, these, yeah, so it, it has no, uh, it does not lead into the plot in any way. No, um, it, it, it touches on similar themes, but it doesn't do anything for the plot. I mean, I'd say that later on in Shakespeare's career, he does manage to do these, what we would, what a, a screenwriting guru would call inefficient storytelling. <laughs> Uh, he does this in the two, the two noble kinsmen. I, I always threaten to get the two names mixed up. <laughs> in the two noble kinsmen, there's a character called the jailer's daughter, and she does play a part in the plot, but her actual impact on the plot is over and done with in, in her first appearance. But throughout, she gets these lots and lots of monologues, and she has no impact on the plot, but these monologues are just there to flesh out her character and also to uh, parallel the lovesickness of the male characters to parallel this lovesickness on her part. Uh, so as he goes along, he does come back to this using a narratively pointless character, but using it to reflect on the main plot. So we, we, we see the beginnings of that here, even if not particularly in a deep or even particularly worked out way. Um, scene two of Act Three. So we have the Duke and Thurio and Proteus saying, "Well, we've gotten rid of Valentine, but goddammit, it, she still loves Valentine. <laughs> uh, it's not worked." Um, the Duke just assumes that oh, this will sort itself out. But the weak, impressive love is as a figure trenched in ice, which, with an hour's heat, dissolves to water and doth lose his form. So basically saying, look, it, this is child love. They won't, uh, I say not child love, this is um, a, ch a child's love. Um, they'll, they'll end up not liking each other in the end. And, the, oh, there's one of those, again, this has one of those lines or those exchanges, which is very easily played for comedy, where, um, let me open it up, where, you know, the Duke is telling him to, you know, we need her to hate Valentine, so Proteus, can you go off and uh, slander him? make him seem like a monster. And Proteus says, so Duke says, then you must undertake to slander him. And Proteus says, and that, my lord, I shall be loath to do. There's an ill office for a gentleman, especially against his very friend. The Duke says, 
Where your good word cannot advantage him, your slander never can damage him. Therefore, the office is indifferent, being entreated to it by your friend. Proteus says, you have prevailed, my lord. So the, the, the automatic, uh, so you wonder if there was any genuineness in him or if he was always just um, pretending that, oh, no, I'm too good a man to, to possibly do this. I'm too good a friend to do this. Yes. I need you to think you convinced me. Yes. <laughs> Uh, but you no, know, some people, you know, when they're reading this play, um, or at least some productions, they point, they they suggest that even earlier on, even when um, Proteus first reveals, you know, his this information to to the Duke, some people play it as the Duke already knowing that Proteus is like a is like a betraying scumbag. Uh -huh. oh. But you know, he's saying, look, I know you, I I know your your goals, Proteus. But you have given me useful information. That's why I'm going to play along with it, which might lead into his late is another line where he says, "And Proteus, we dare trust you in this kind of sport because we know on Valentine's report you are already love's firm votary." So maybe he's saying, "Look, I don't need to tell you this, uh, but I shouldn't need to tell you this. But remember, you have a girl at home. Don't go after my daughter." And maybe that's maybe that's in there. <laughs> yeah. But any other comments on Act Three, or was this sort of? No, I, I think it, I think it is what it is. Um, it, again, it's a it's a bit of one of those fillers where you think, "Wow, really? We need an entire act for us to be told from the Duke to Proteus to go and slander Valentine." <laughs> yes, this could have been done where he's going up to Sylvia's quarters, and then he just says to the audience, oh, this business that I... Yeah, it really like, could be a pre-scene monologue. Yes. So. Act four. Yes, enter, the outlaws. Enter certain outlaws, a lovely term. Not several outlaws, certain outlaws. Have no idea what that means. <laughs> but how do we view these outlaws? Because... You know, they seem to view themselves as being, you know, noble people. Um, I think later on, um, there is... Ah, so, for instance, the third outlaw says, Know then that some of us are gentlemen, such as the fury of ungoverned youth thrust from the company of awful men. Myself was from Verona banished, from practising to steal away a lady, an heir, and near allied unto the duke. The second outlaw says, And I from Mantua, for a gentleman who, in my mood, I stabbed unto the heart. Then the first outlaw says, and I for such like petty crimes as these. So the, they're trying to present themselves as being, oh no, we're we just tiny crimes, tiny crimes. But then the first outlaw just lumps together, you know, the a, a, in, a, a love affair with murder and just calls these, these petty crimes. He lumps them both together. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, so, so just, just some light murder. Uh, yes. so, but how do you? But how do you view these outlaws? Do you view them as being, you know, monsters, or do you view them as being sort of romantic individuals and sort of uh, inoffensive outlaws that they view themselves as being? I, I think they they are supposed to be presented as inoffensive outlaws, not not quite heroes. But I I when I was reading it, I kind of um, had in mind. I'm gonna have to quickly look up the actor. Um, the, in the Count of Monte Cristo, he ends up with outlaws um, when he escapes. I was thinking of the character of Jacopo, 
who is a criminal who becomes his sidekick. And it's pl- he's played by Louise Guzman in a wonderful adaptation that also involves Guy Pearce um, as Fernand. Uh, and so f- f- I-, I was a big fan of that movie, and therefore now I see these outlaws as Louise Guzman. But yes, no, I, I see these outlaws as... We're we're not we're not to see them as the good guys, but we don't see them as evil. They yes, are yes. they are neutral. Yes, it's like um, but when you're watching you know some modern crime thing that's made for network television, it's like oh don't worry we don't kill anyone, or even if it's about like a murderer, so, oh don't worry I never kill innocent people. It's just trying. Look, we want you to feel good about. Um, the, uh, these are the drug pressure. dealers who help the cop find the rapist. Yes, yes. They're, they're on the side of good, even if they're drug dealers. <laughs> yes, yes. But I say that these outlaws. It's not really that they're on the side of good. It's more that they just that they're not that bad. Yeah. And actually, I'd say that you know, in this scene, you know, him and um, Valentine Speed, they're captured by them. And they just make him their leader. And how do you view this? Um, because it's how do you view this? Ah, uh, it's 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 an easy jump forward, and yeah. I'm I, I I I happily accept it, knowing it is ridiculous. Um, one line I do want to point out though that I I find hilarious. So they, these are a bunch of guys that have killed people, and Valentine is I take your offer and will live with you, provided you do no outrages on silly women. Yes. Um, no, we detest such vile practices. <laughs> yeah, so don't worry. And, and, you know, on another level, this does make them um, immediately better than Proteus. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just because he, he won't rob silly women. <laughs> Although, so when it comes to, like, you know, my view of them making him their leader, I mean, not, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it does seem a bit weird making this guy you've just met your leader. Uh, but the given what Proteus says later on and how, you know, that their only um, law is their own wills, uh, that this does not seem like a group where being a leader means much. The most a leader can do is sort of hold them back a tiny bit. Uh, So it's not really a place of privilege. And also, uh, one of the reasons why they make him leader is because he's a polyglot. So I think that maybe the reason why they make him a leader is less to be their leader than to be like their, their front man their their communicator because you know who are you yes. going to steal you steal from just random people walking through or are you going to steal from foreigners you know rich foreigners traveling the countryside you need someone who can speak a lot of languages for that so that that's a, a good reason to have a polyglot as your leader no i think it's acceptable for me i never gave it much thought i was i was like yeah it's a, it's a common trope the 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 guy is sent off and becomes the head of a outlaw bunch Yes. But what do you think about the way Valentine lies? He says, uh, for, so, um, what were you banished from thence? Uh, for what offence? Uh, for that which now torments me to rehearse, I killed a man whose death I must repent. But yet I slew him manfully in fight without false vantage or base treachery. Now, this, you know, he's, on one level, you can obviously see the rationales for this. They're, you know, these big, buff, um, you know, outlaws, and he says, I, I don't want to say that, oh, I got a bit too involved with a lady's miss, with a, a <laughs> daughter. I, I want to seem like a hard man. <laughs> I killed a man. I killed him. 
So he's trying to impress them. But does it but does this fit with his character? Because you know, throughout he seems like a very forthright person. He seems like a person who can't even think through Sylvia's um very facile, um, um even blatant um ruse. And yet here he is basically saying, I killed a man. He's using misdirection, he's using lies. Yeah, but I think it's a, I think I think it is an easy lie. As you said, he 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 is a he is a gentleman uh, of, of more of a he is literally gentle. Um, so he doesn't want he is scared shitless and so he's trying to act tough. Um, I think that's all there is to it is that he is a guy who wants to act tough and I, I don't get the impression that Valentine is a guy who would who would never lie under any circumstance. I think I mean, he's a good like guy, him. but I don't think he is over the top a good guy. I don't think he's Superman. Yeah. Yes, I mean, when it comes to being, uh, my, my, my comment was less about him being good and more about him not thinking in this kind of way. That is that he can't, it's less that he thinks it's wrong to use deception and more that he would only use the most feeble deceptions that his mind can come up with. See, I, I, A, I don't think it's that smart a deception. I think it's something yeah, that an ordinary person would think about. And B, I think he's only an idiot in terms of love. Yes. I, I, I don't think he's ever given the impression of being like Lance, a complete idiot, full stop. Yes. Um, and after all, he is a polyglot. He, he, is, he is a gentleman. He, he's had education. I mean, I know quite a lot of polyglots who are absolute fucking idiots. So <laughs> yes, perhaps yeah. I give I too much credence to... At Toastmasters, I had a guy who would boast about knowing Latin. But he's one of those people who thinks, oh, you know, coronavirus, that was made by the Americans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, but perhaps it comes from my own bias of never being able to learn a language that, uh, and just yeah. being jealous. And therefore, anyone who does learn a language, I am impressed by. Yeah, but yeah, no, I, I always took it as, you know, he's a relatively intelligent guy. He just is an idiot when it comes to love. Mm-hmm, most likely. So that's, uh, well, that's scene, act four, scene one. Yeah. So now we have act four, scene two. And this is the scene where we have Julia coming up, all dragged up. <laughs> and this is also the scene where she realizes Proteus's infidelity. Ah, do you... Uh, how do you just our, our first reactions to this scene? What are they? This is the scene in which you go. There is Proteus isn't just he. He isn't an evil conniving guy. He's just a sleaze. Yes, it's and yeah. So up to for our listeners, I'll give the plot synopsis. Uh, what happens is that Proteus. He essentially shoots him, keeps shooting himself in the foot. <laughs> so, you know, him and Thuria, they start singing a song about how lovely Sylvia is. And I, have they, I, I assume they wrote this out beforehand because they say, who is Sylvia? What is she that all our swains commend her? Holy heard and wise is she, the heavens such graces lend her that she might admire it be. So they're singing this and Julia is like at the background saying, oh my fucking God. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then... We have um, Proteus um, realising that his betrayal has got him nothing. He says, when I protest too, pr protest too loyalty to her, Sylvia, 
She twits me with my falsehood to my friend, when to her beauty I commend my vows. She bids me think how I have been forsworn in breaking faith with Julia, whom I loved. Now, this is... He sold his soul to the devil, and he's got nothing. That's yep. the tragedy of him. But the point, but the, the worst part is the part where, you know, he doesn't regret it at, at all. He just keeps on going. He says, well, she says she hates me, uh, but I'll just keep going. Do, do you think that he actually thinks it will fix anything? Or does he view it as, like, romantic in a way to keep banging up against a brick wall? I, I, I think it's the latter. I think he, he thinks the most romantic thing he can do is continue on in his folly. Yes, and this is, I actually find this scene to be, well, her, his relationship to, uh, uh, to Sylvia, I'd find to be a, uh, in, in a sense, it's metatextual, or maybe it's merely genre aware, because you know, courtly love poetry. This is those poets, poetry yep. where, you know, the poet is a male lover saying, oh, I love you, I, she's so, her eyes are suns, her teeth are pearls, her hair is streaming coral, that sort of thing. And also, but oh, my mistress, she always casts her eyes on others. She is cruel. And it's that Samuel Daniel song, fair is my mistress and cruel as she's fair. But, and usually your, your sympathies are on the side of the lover. Oh, you love her, but she doesn't love you. Oh, she's so cruel. In this play, the mistress is quite right to view him as a scumbag. Her cruelness is quite justified. He is an absolute monster. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of playing with the dynamics in a way that you entirely sympathize with the, with the woman, which usually you don't. In those, in those original ones, the woman, in those courtly love poetry, the woman is usually the, the object of affection far away from you. But here, I think this moral... being... Do you think this being a comedy, it, the intention was to be that we empathize with Proteus to some degree? That we feel sorry for him? I mean, I'd say that as a comedy, I think maybe we were just meant to laugh at his patheticness. That he said, yeah, oh, no, I can... Like, I don't laugh at it. I, I just feel icky by it. But I'm wondering if, if the original intention was we're supposed to empathize, laugh at him, but feel sorry for him. I'd say that the more he persists, the less we met, we seem, at least I'm able to empathize with him. Yeah. And I would say that, I mean, I didn't laugh. I don't really laugh at Shakespeare, but I did, but I, I'll put it like this. I don't laugh at, um, um, most, com at most romantic comedies, even modern film versions. But I did think, ah, this is humorous. This is comedy. It's not funny. It's comedy. So, <laughs> so but I, I did find this funny. I did find his patheticness, um, humorous but you know comedy is subjective <laughs> so um what do you think about the the song who is sylvia like we're, we're, we're talking about shakespeare here who is known as great poet and has written many sonnets that people think are the greatest sonnets in english writing what do you think about the song as a piece of poetry well, I admit that I skipped over it because it's just... I admit that Shakespeare's songs, I don't particularly like them. Uh, and it's, maybe it's... I mean, usually it's maybe maybe that's just because he steals a lot of his songs from other places. Just he lips it up and... It's, it's like making a film and just put on a Beyonce song. Not saying that Beyonce is bad, but um, I'd say that I my habit is to skip them over. They, they usually don't have much to grip me in them. Um, okay. 
Did you like this song? Look, I, I thought it was fairly good. Um, I, I didn't think it was anything too um, incredible. It didn't grip me like some of his other poetry. But but I thought it was it was mediocre in a good way. It, it, I, I would call it good by, as we were talking before, the difference between good and great. I'd call it good meaning good rather than yes. bad. <laughs> it just got me thinking because it's often the most famous part of this play. When people think of this play, often what people think of is this song. When it comes to Proteus, I sort of overlook this, the, the exact level to which Proteus is making like an absolute ass of himself and like a monster of himself in front of Julia and to Sylvia in, in that the ways he tries to get on her good side where, you know, Sylvia is saying, look, I don't, I don't want you. you. You are awful. I hate you. Um, but then Proteus says, I grant sweet love that I did love a lady, but she is dead. <laughs> As like, twelve false, I should speak it, but I am sure she is not very, and this is Julia speaking to her side, but Sylvia says, Say that she be, yet Valentine thy friend survived, to whom thyself art witness, I am betrothed. And art thou not ashamed to wrong him with thy importunacy? And then Proteus says, I likewise hear that Valentine is dead. <laughs> <laughs> this, these are like the most feeble lies, and he, he doesn't need to say this. It's one of those, he, he just seems to be digging himself deeper and deeper with gambits <laughs> that in no way increase the likelihood of getting what he wants. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's throwing out everything he can to make it happen. It's not going to work, but he's throwing it out there. <laughs> yes. Oh, also, he... an asteroid is about to hit Earth, and we only have one day left to live. Oh, and my kiss grants wishes. Yes. Um, but then, you know, he just says, oh, please let me have your picture. Let me have your picture. And then Sylvia says, I'm very loath to be your idol, sir. But since your falsehood shall become you well to worship shadows and adore false shapes, send to me in the morning and I'll send it. So, you know, I, I look at this line because it's saying, you know, okay, take this and go away. But also, look, this is the most you'll ever have of me. You have this fake image of me. But I also like what happens later on, where essentially he offers, he says to um, Sylvia, take my ring to her. Um, so there's no reason for this. There's no, it's like, because Sylvia said, look, I'll give it to you. I, I don't want to just, I'll give it to you and I'll go away. But he's saying, oh no, I need to dig myself deeper. I need to say, look how faithful I am. I am giving up a symbol of my faith. Yeah, he <laughs> sincerely thinks he has a chance. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's clear that he doesn't, but he sincerely believes it. Yes. Which, which it, it, it is a certain type of arrogance, which is just insane. And I wonder if you could, you could play this, you could put on a production in which the opening scenes show that same sort of arrogance, that his love for Julia is just as arrogant. I, mm, I, I, this is one of those things where I feel that it, when it comes to Shakespeare and when you know, modern directors try to uh, paper over his faults, Sometimes they just add entirely new things. Like they, like for instance, I wonder if you could make him make his character consistent without actually adding too much to the play. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking more in terms of making him consistently worse because you don't yes. get the feeling like he's so bad in the opening scenes. I'm just wondering: is there a way to play him? 
that you could. And that, this is me definitely putting on the director hat saying, if you wanted to put on a version of this play that is more interesting, and could, could you make him out to clearly be the opposite of Valentine from the beginning? Yes, maybe, for example, when he's talking with Speed, there are lots of, let's say, bucks and women wondering about, and he's just staring at them. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that would sort of go against my, my saying, don't add anything, but that is one way to do it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and then we have Lance entering with his dog yeah. crab. Do you want to um, summarize this wall of text? I assumed you hadn't read it, yeah. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, it's, look, it's, it's, it's this weird relationship Lance has with his dog. Um, and the fact that he fucked up with another dog that's supposed to have gone to Sylvia, which is a weird gift, if you ask me. Well, then we have scene four. My entire summary of that Lance monologue was just Lance. So How I, cool I is it idea. that Julia's um, name is Sebastian as she's pretending to be a guy? Uh, why is it cool? Because that's Viola's brother. Oh, so it seems like do you think Shakespeare was calling back to earlier in his career? Or yeah, I, I, that, that, that's my theory, is that, yeah, it, Shakespeare remembers Sebastian, the girl who was dressed as a boy. <laughs> and that's I how he came for the names in Twelfth Night. Proteus, so Proteus is now hiring Julia as a page, and now we have the... I mean, it's one of those things where I don't know how realistic this is meant to be, um, the fact that he really cannot recognize his his girlfriend, even though she is, you know, prop just dragging up. I, I assume maybe it's somewhat believable, like in a world where it is almost illegal to dress up like the opposite sex and also where she is meant to be at home. You wonder if it's sort of like, oh, well, yeah, this this boy sort of looks like my girlfriend, but, you know, I'm just being silly. Of course it's not. Well, why would she be dressed up as a boy coming here? That's a very weird thing to do. <laughs> Uh, I also accept I mean, that Proteus is the sort of asshole who wouldn't pay attention to the servants. Yes. And also, I'm the type of person who... I, I can have met someone for for years and know their face, but if they don't come up to me and introduce themselves, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go up to them. I mean, I'm not I, sure I that's I them. recognize their face. <laughs> Maybe it's not them. I don't want to be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, so, so, excuse me. Excuse me, sir. Are you actually a girl dressed up as a boy? <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I know. I, I definitely read this particular version of girl dressed up and as a boy as very much. A, he doesn't care about servants. He's not going to pay attention. Unlike later <laughs> on, where not not only does the guy pay attention, he wonders about his sexuality because he is attracted to this young boy. Might not fully yes. get that it's a girl, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he at least calls out that there's something attractive about that young man. Yes, yes. Uh, to the master mistress of my passion. Yes. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to um, so ah, so he, this is another place where he's you know the dramatic irony is laid on thick. So go presently and take this ring with thee. Deliver it to Madame Sylvia. She loved me and delivered it to me. <laughs> it's just like telling. The woman who gave him the ring, go and give this ring. I am proving directly to you that I am an absolute um, fuckboy. <laughs> um, what What do you think in the next scene where it's Julia and Sylvia talking? 
Is it the next scene or just the next section of the scene? But anyway, I think it's the next section. It, uh, again, with with his structures. <laughs> yes. Before we get to that, I want to like uh, Proteus and Julia their conversation where she's saying, when as a servant, she's being a bit um, impetuous, but she's saying because we think she loved you as well as you do love your lady Sylvia. She dreams on him that has forgot her love. You dote on her that cares not for your love. Tis pity love should be so contrary, and thinking on it makes me cry alas. And Proteus says, "Oh well, give her the ring." He has no response. He's like, well, shut up. Get, take, I, I, I hear your argument. I can't argue with it, but get, give her the ring. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I also read that as Proteus not hearing a word said. <laughs> he doesn't oh, the servant is babbling again. Yes. Oh, and this is all the introduction to the fact that, you know, Julia, she knows that she's just seen Proteus be an arsehole. Yeah. Uh, but she's saying, alas, poor fool, why do I pity him? That with his very heart despises me. Because he loves her, he despises me. Because I love him, I must pity him. So this is that her love, just like Proteus, is, is messed up. But yeah. in her case, it leads her towards her original and faithful and betrothed object. Yeah. He is he is pathetic. I must yes. put up with it. Yes, and in a sense, she... Uh, so, you know, the Proteus, he is like, you know, that is an inversion of the uh, the courtly love thing where... The, the cruel mistress has a damn good reason to be cruel. But now I think we have a gender swap version of it where Proteus, he is the cruel, he is the cruel mistress. You know, literally he is, he is now her, her, his, her employer. <laughs> and Julia is the one, oh, I love him, but he is so cruel. He looks on others. So we have now a gender flip version of the courtly love poetry. So he's using, Shakespeare's using interesting ways of looking at this love dynamic here. <laughs> I also think this is um, a great example of where Shakespeare was ahead of his time, but before our time when it came to writing women, in that he writes these really strong, clever women, but here's a woman who has just been treated like this, and rather than go, oh, well, Proteus isn't worth it, I'm going to take this ring, go buy myself a pony. Goes, oh no, no! I'll, I'll, I'll still do everything for him. I'll still take the ring to the girl he does like. I mean, I'd say that you say it's a bit um, before our time, but you know, what was that song? It was like, let me find the lyrics. But um, there was a song called "New Rules," where it's like, "Rule one: Don't pick up the phone," or you know, "You can never get over him if you're under him." That sort of song, where it's like a girl saying, "Look, I hate him now. I've broken up with him. I can't, uh, but I still love him. I can't afford to go anywhere near him." Because then I'll just get back together with him, even though I know this is a bad thing. So this this isn't like just a purely archaic, old-fashioned thing. This is a way that even today people recognise how love works. Oh, I, I think people would recognise it as yes, this is what happens when you're in love. But you, we we never get a character from Shakespeare that is a strong enough woman that she doesn't end up with the guy at the end. Um, and it it, it does sadden me a little. <laughs> Um, especially because it is hard in this particular play to imagine that Proteus and Julia are happy. It's just, it's hard to imagine it. And therefore it's sad that they are not happy, but they're together. Yes, even into the 20th century, like what was that thing with with, with um, Pygmalion and George Bernard Shaw? He was just so irritated that every time someone tried to adapt his play, they just insisted on adding a, an ending where she married um, Professor Higgins. <laughs> it's yeah. just like these people 
And his response was, look, I'm, this isn't an unhappy ending where they don't marry. I'm just saying that there are more ways to be happy than marrying someone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, apparently that wasn't yet um, a thing in Shakespeare's time. Of course okay, not. And I, I appreciate that. It's just I like to bring it up as a counterpoint to the point that he is quite progressive for his time. Yes. <laughs> but also, on the, actually, on the point of marriage, like someone pointed out that you know the, the idea is over oh, comedy ends in a marriage, but no, actually they don't. If you read his plays, it's always just before the marriage. The only time where he shows a marriage is like in his tragedies where people are going to die afterwards. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so his new head canon that the comedy turns into a tragedy three scenes later, and that's why he stops it there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was like Romeo and Juliet, like a comedy for the first two and a half acts. They get married, and then things start going down here. <laughs> uh, so now that's that scene. So now Julia is talking with Sylvia, so let's get back to this. And, I mean, at least in my opinion, like you can plainly see that Julia is taken with Sylvia. She is also charmed by Sylvia. Like she, she, she likes the fact that Sylvia has you know, common decency, that part of the reason why Sylvia says, no, take back the ring, I don't care about it, is that the more shame for you know, she, she gives Sylvia the ring, the more shame for him that he sends it me. But I have heard him say a thousand times, as Julia gave it him at his departure, though his false finger had profaned the ring, mine shall not do his Julia so much wrong. So even when she does not know Julia, she, she is saying, look, I'm not going to hurt this woman. <laughs> yeah. I, I really like the conversation back and forth between them two. Um, the Julia opening up, but not so far as saying, you know, this is me. Yes. Um, I, also, I also love the line um, where Sylvia says, is she fair? And Julia says she's, she has been fairer. Um, yes. I, I just think that's a beautifully sad line. Yes, and she, in my judgment, was as fair as you, but since she did neglect her looking glass and threw her sun-expelling mask away, the air had starved the roses in her cheeks and pinched the little tincture of her face. That now she has become as black as I. So you know, I like. I like. This is one of those lines where there's no reason to be this poetic <laughs> in this particular moment. But it's one of those things where you know, just put in this this burst of let's say I'd say some of the best poetry in this particular play. Yeah. Ah. But also again, this sort of equation of black with um, being unattractive. So if you. <laughs> uh, but then we have, um, so then we have Julia, and you know she's saying she's looking at the picture, and she's like, and she shall thank you for it. There, you know it, a virtuous gentlewoman, mild and beautiful. I hope her my master's suit will be but cold, since she respects my mistress' love so much. Alas, how can love trifle with itself? Here is her picture. Let me see. I think if I had such a tire, this face of mine were full as lovely as is this of hers. And yet the painter fatted her a little unless I flatter with myself too much. Her hair is auburn, mine is perfect yellow. That be all the difference in his love, I'll get me such a coloured periwig. Her eyes are grey as glass, and so are mine. I but her forehead's low, and mine's as high. Uh, what should it be that he respects in her, but I can make respective in myself, if this fond love were not a blinded god? So she, it's one of those things where she, this is her love rival. Sylvia is yeah. the woman that her lover loves. And yet she's saying, look, in terms of character, I, she, she respects my wishes, even if she doesn't know me. And also, 
she's looking we look about the same i mean she has a different hair color maybe she's a tiny bit more attractive maybe my forehead's a bit different but you know uh she's saying that look i i can't say that she's uh, she doesn't deserve his love but also she doesn't deserve a man's love and even at the end she's saying um by jove i vow i should have scratched out your unseeing eyes to make my master out of love with thee so in Shakespeare's time, you know, you and thou, these had different connotations. So like you was like a formal thing, was like a cold thing. It says, you know, it, it's like vous in French. And thou, this was like the intimate one. This was that um, it sort of shows or, or it could be insulting. Uh, but the fact that she says, I should have scratched out your unseeing eyes to make my master out of love with thee. It's sort of like saying she's, she's sort of being... Um, you know, vicious and saying, scratch out your, but then at the end, she moves back to thee because oh, I can't stay angry at you. I have no reason to be angry at you. Interestingly, you the um, Royal Shakespeare Company, when they did this play, they gave these final lines to the painting. Okay. Uh, that is being held, and it is the suggestion is, why should I give back, give such a decent painting? Why, why not destroy it? Deface it. Which I mean, is odd. <laughs> now, Act 5. And here we start with Eglamore and Sylvia, a rather pointless scene where it's just sort of saying <laughs> that, oh, she's, she's done her confession and now she's going off to you know, run off, essentially. That's it. Do you have any views on this scene? Nah, that was that was it. I actually find, in general, the middle, like, oh, almost like scene three to five adds very little. <laughs> yes, I don't know. <laughs> it, it bogs down this play. Yes, yes. Act five, scene two. Sylvia, Proteus, Julia dresses a page. You said you didn't particularly view any scene before scene four to be that um, significant. Uh, and my notes are quite slim on the ground for this one, where the Duke comes in. So P is talking to Thurio and uh, basically saying, look, I, I've told her, I've told her how lovely you are, but she still doesn't like you. <laughs> and, you know, and Proteus doesn't seem to realize that his position is not that much better. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Ah, so so Julia says to it. Ah, so th as I was saying before, Julia functions in a more commentary role, um, which you know has thematic significance, even if not narrative significance. Where she says, "But love will not be spurred to what it loathes." So, because <laughs> they're saying, "Look, you're, you're both off here." Yeah, one is not looking better than the other. Yes, and how? Yes, and lots, you know, lots of comments. Uh, I'm not sure how necessary this is or how much this brings into the plot where, you know, where Thurio says, what does she say of me about this and that? And then the Proteus will respond that, oh, she says this and that. Um, and Julia will make a snide comment off to the side. Uh, there's not much going on here. But then the Duke enters and says, oh, no, my daughter has escaped. <laughs> I, I'd say that in a, in a later Shakespeare play, he probably just cut over... Um, Sylvia talking with Eglamore and just cut straight to the Duke saying, oh no, she's escaped. So he wouldn't need to set this up. Yeah. <laughs> Thurio um, to me also doesn't hold my attention as well as 
analogues in later Shakespeare plays do. Um, when, whenever he appears on stage or on page, it just I have no interest in the character. Um, it, unlike say Paris, for example, or who who's the one in Taming of the Shrew? I entirely forget. Uh, <laughs> I only know Petruchio. Yeah, uh, Thurio that's just. A, I don't have much a, time for him. Ah, uh, so, um, but you know, how how do you so you say Thurio didn't get your attention? But how do you view uh, like Thurio says? Why this it is to be a peevish girl that flies her fortune when it follows her? Oh, after more to be revenged on Eglamour than for the love of reckless Sylvia. So at this point, I, at least in my reading of it, Thurio is starting to realize it. She's a bit. She's a bit high maintenance. There's a bit more effort than she's worth. <laughs> yeah, she's she's pretty, but I need someone who's more submissive. Yes, <laughs> or, or at the very least, someone who isn't going to run away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh, so then five point three, which is just there's not much that happens here other than the outlaws capturing her and saying that Eglamour has run away. Yes. Uh, anything else you want to say about this scene? Um, no. No, yes, no. Um, yeah, as I said, th- that's not much. It's like Shakespeare needed to have a scene in order to get this little plot point in because he didn't know how to do it otherwise. Yeah, this is one of the, the ways, you know, they say, oh, it's show, don't tell, show, don't tell. This is a big reason why you don't do that. You should just tell this. A lot <laughs> These three scenes could be gotten rid of if Sylvia had just said... Um, uh, such and <laughs> yep. You could have gone from Sylvia escaping, um, a, a very quick scene of Proteus leaving to find her. You don't even need the others, really. You, you yes, could yes, cut a lot four, of stuff. Yes, just the four lines of Proteus walking on to say, Zounds, oh no, she's escaped. Let's yeah. face her. And then he leaves off the other end of the screen. Scene four. And now we have Valentine. What do you think? Of what? Of this soliloquy. Yes. It reminds me of what's the one where um, the Duke is, well, there's some Duke who is pushed off into a forest. And uh, this is the one with Jack Hughes, I think. Who's the, who, which is the play with Jack Hughes? Is it As You Like It? I think so. Yes. Well, you know, th- this is one. This is one of those things we like. Valentine says, "How used to breed a habit in a man, this shadowy desert, unfrequented woods. I better brook than flourishing people towns." Now, this is just like the the the, the Duke and as you like it, saying, "Oh, yeah. how much I love like the burbling of brooks, then to the the gossip of the court or something like that." And when I read as you like it, I think, well, the way he describes it, um, I think he's just re- trying to convince himself that this is a good state of affairs living in, frankly, uh, shit, <laughs> bad nature. Uh, do you think that Valentine is actually happy with this? Um, I, I think he. it's more like, this is a great place to mope. Yes, he's in his emo phase. <laughs> if, if, if I'm going to mope, this is a good choice of a place to mope in. Because it's like, um, yes. tune my, uh, and to the nightingale's complaining notes, tune my distresses and record my woes. It feels, it feels very much a, yeah, if you're going to 
whinge and complain. You you howl at the moon. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So that that's how I, I read it. Yes, and this sort of ties into, like, there was an attitude in Shakespeare's time, and I, which is that, um, you know, despair is a sin, and but it is also as, uh, for some reason, despair is tempting as the other sins, you know, like being a mopey emo. He, it, it doesn't feel good, <laughs> but yet we indulge in it. Yes. So do you, do you feel that here, or, or do you... Th- do you feel that you know? I, I'd rather be here and just be an e- uh, be an emo. No, no, no. I I feel very much like I am indulging in depression. Yes. Uh, yeah, there was that line from um, the White Devil where Victoria says, um, "The oh, the cursed devil who doth all other sins give us offer us thrice candied over despair with gall and stibium, yet we carouse it off." So. It's a, it doesn't feel good, and yet we keep on eating it. <laughs> yeah. I wonder. Yeah, I wonder it's, if it's, it's, the, the, the modern day version is sitting in front of Netflix with a bunch of ice cream and chocolate for three days. Is that indulging in despair, or is that trying to cope with it? Oh no, it's indulging. There's there's no coping I, mechanism there. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd say that perhaps the difference is that there is, I mean, I'd say that eating ice cream in front of Netflix is not making a really good effort to change your mood. However, I'd say, I mean, I'd say that, you know, at least in my experience, when I'm feeling awful, and I, I won't say suicidal, but when I feel I prefer not to exist, um, there are moments where I just don't want to leave that feeling. But the thought of getting happier um, fills me with perhaps um, contempt at myself. Uh, so. I mean, it's 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 not that my means of getting happier are ineffective. It's more that I just don't want to get better. Uh, so I, that's. Do you think that's what's happening here with um, Valentine, or do you think it's just that he's choosing ineffective means to become happier? No, I I, th- I think I agree with you, and that's what's happening with Valentine's. I just disagree with you that that's not what hap- it happens when you sit in front of Netflix with a bucket of ice cream. I think that too is about wallowing. (laughs) I think that's where we disagree. I think we agree in this scene, though, that this is what is happening to Valentine, is he is wallowing. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Well, anyway, he he seems, you know, we get a sense of what being a leader of an outlaw group is. Oh, you think it's going to be sexy like an Errol Flynn movie, but no, you're the den mother. Uh, These are my mates that make their will, their laws. Have someone happy passenger and chase they love me well, yet I have much to do to keep them from uncivil outrages. <laughs> and then we have um, Proteus come in, basically saying, look, I stopped them from raping you. Love me. Please love me. <laughs> do, do you think he actually genuinely believes they're trying to rape her? Or do you think that um, he's just trying to get on their good side by saying, oh, no, don't worry, I saved you? Well, see, as I have Proteus in my mind, there's this arrogant asshole-ish. I, I could completely believe that he thinks if you're not within the city, then you must be basically an animal. And therefore, yes, yes. Th- they were there to rape. I personally can't rape because I am a gentleman. If I have sex with yes. a lady, she wants it. They're, they're animals. They're rapists. That gentleman line. I remember like there was a famous comment from like the era when doctors were having a debate as to whether you should wash your hands. And there was one doctor who just said, it's like, 
was this sickness caused by the doctor not by the doctor's hands? How? Doctors are gentlemen. Their hands are clean. So just automatically. I don't need to wash my hands. I'm a gentleman. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so, so yes, I, I do believe he thinks she was in quite danger. He could never believe that he could ever be a danger. Yes. <laughs> Given that later on he's saying... But except when it comes to him thinking he couldn't be a rapist, the fact that he uses the word, I will force you, I mean, that is... That is just basically saying it. He doesn't say rape, but you know, for that, there's no real way to, even to yourself, make it ambiguous what forcia means. No, but I also think he would see it as a different thing. Uh, given that he says, and love you against the nature of love. So I, I'd say that at this point, may, I, I do view him as being more like, look, I know what I'm doing here, but I love you so much, I must have you. And even if that means uh, raping you. But I, I think, and this I guess is getting too much into the psychology of rapists, but um, I think in his mind, it's more about, I will force you to love me. Whereas they're rapists, they don't care if you love them or not. Hmm, is that, uh, okay. I, I'd say that that is a reading. That he's, yes, us. Uh, so in a sense, he is practicing what would now be called corrective rape. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's a good yeah. way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> uh, rather, yes. Uh, so, and then Sylvia says, oh, heaven. You, know, the, you love these quaint expressions of disgust. He's going to <laughs> rape me. Oh, heaven. Uh, oh, oh, Zounds. Zounds is undoing my petticoat. <laughs> and, and then I'll force thee to yield to my desire. Just really, really going off on this. Um, oh, ruffian. Then Valentine comes in and saves the day. Ruffian, let go of that rude, uncivil touch, thou friend of an ill fashion. I guess it's also important to point out here that um, so many people are against this scene of Proteus um, wanting to rape her that they remove it. This and an upcoming scene um, are often removed from versions of the play. And in fact, when it started to be, at the first performances we have recorded did not include these scenes. Yes, I remember I was reading like some 18th century adaptation by Benjamin Victor. And yes. you know, he, this is an era when they felt you know, perfectly fine you know, removing and adding things. Um, but he basically just said, he just remove some of these lines. Just say, look, it doesn't work. <laughs> I, I don't, the audience won't accept this. I don't accept this. There, there are weeds in here which I must pull out. Those are the words he used. I'm removing weeds from Shakespeare. Whereas, interestingly, in the 1970 adaptation, um, that had, I think it had like Patrick Stewart playing Lance or something like that. Um, in, in it, they kept the rape, but they removed the later scene, which we'll get to, um, because they wanted a greater impact on the the tragedy and they didn't want to dirty the hands of Valentine. They is it that they didn't want to make um dirty the hands of Valentine, do you mean dirty the hands of um They they wanted Proteus to look evil but not Valentine. So they removed part of the scenes and kept other parts. Yes. And when it comes to Proteus, do you think he is genuinely forgiving or do you think that, you know, Valentine does seem to be the leader of these these outlaws. <laughs> Do you think that he's saying, "Oh shit, I probably shouldn't annoy the guy with the gun"? 
<laughs> uh, so, so you're saying is Proteus actually repentant? Yes, like my shame and guilt confounds me. Forgive me, Valentine, if hearty sorrow be a sufficient ransom for offence I tender here. I do truly suffer as ever I did commit. And when he finds it, that with Julia is there, he says something. Let me find it. Um, I think that um, while Shakespeare doesn't do it all a good job here as compared to other plays when someone decides to repent, I think the intention, and if I was directing it, I would direct it as Proteus is repenting. Um, yeah. But disturbingly, he is repenting the betrayal of Valentine. He is not repenting what he has done to Sylvia. Yes, <laughs> it was a betrayal of your trust, not hers. Yes, and I think that 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 adds to the terrible, terrible nature of both Proteus and the the. the way we still have to go with sexism in yeah. entertainment that somehow Proteus is meant to be forgiven because he yes. repented for Valentine. <laughs> yes, and at this point, let us go into that lie which we've been foreshadowing up until this point. So Valentine says, yes. then I am paid. And once again, I do receive the honest who by repentance is not satisfied is Lord of heaven nor earth. For these are pleased by penitence the eternal wraths appeased and that my love may appear plain and free, all that was mine and Sylvia, I give thee. So, <laughs> that line, a lot of productions solve that by just removing those two lines. They say, you probably shouldn't give a lady to her rapist. Um, yeah. But, you know, let's try to, uh, I'll go through some of the, the, the you know, for, for ages, and from the beginning, uh, people have hated this line. Um, you have, you know, as I said, Benjamin Victor removed it. I mean, it's a skip ahead in time. George Eliot, the 19th century uh, female novelist, hated it. Saying, it this is the than... one that was removed um, in the 1970 production. Yes. Um, yes um... It wasn't removed in the latest Royal Shakespeare production, which I can yes, talk I to. Think... Yes, in, in one of them, I think the way they justified it was, you know, they were trying to say, oh, no, this is just a weird way of saying something else, where they yes. have, you know, first uh, Valentine kisses Sylvia, then he kisses um, Proteus, you know, to, to imply that I give the love that I have for Sylvia, you know, my, my deep abiding love, I give you, not her, but the kind of love I have in myself towards you. So, yes. you know, Shakespeare does express a lot of words in a very weird way. So maybe this is a good reading. Um, of course, uh, the only way for that reading to work, and this is what the Royal Shakespeare Company did, is they removed Julia's next line, Oh, unhappy me. Well, maybe Shakespeare was aware that, um, <laughs> uh, that Valentine said this in a very weird way. <laughs> yeah, it, it, to, to me, Shakespeare confirmed that this was handing Ju Sylvia over by the line, oh, oh, unhappy me, or oh, me unhappy. I mean, when it comes why to would Julia that, be upset by Valentine giving his love to Proteus? Yes. Yes, basically. Yes, there's no way to get around that. Unless you want to take another explanation, which I have never heard of, but I just thought of right now, and that is Valentine falling in love with Proteus. Mm -hmm. Now, yes. the best explanation I found that doesn't make Shakespeare look bad is that 
yes, it means I'm handing you to your rapist, but Shakespeare was trying to do this as edgy comedy, that this is a farce. Yes. And that if you take all these scenes as farcical, that the rape is farcical because apparently rape can be farcical, um, then you see it as this is ha ha ha, look at them kind of. Yes. Which only works if you're happy to go, oh, well, fuck it. England in the 16th century thought rape was funny. Yes. I, I found like another interpretation by Edward Capel. I think this is from the, the version of Shakespeare he did, or maybe it was just a series of essays. This is 1780. He says, um, has a, uh, so this can scarce be made rational, but by conceiving it a trial of his friend's declared penitence. Something in the action, a squeeze, a look might make such Ooh. his intention known to Sylvia and so to an audience. But if that is the case, yeah, so maybe maybe it is a trial. Maybe he's saying, look, I'm going to try. If I want to make sure that you're not just a rabid dog who's temporarily cowed, I'm going to dangle the thing you want in front of you. And if you can hold back, I'll, I'll forgive you. Ah, yes. Yeah, so this is the, the, prove to me you don't want her by letting me offer her up and you will or, say or no. Prove to me that you can, you can understand that this is not for you. <laughs> so yes, that maybe that's a good way to produce it. That um, I'd say that Julia's almost immediate response to this sort of uh, is not understanding. It's a ploy by Valentine. Yes, yes. So that so this threads the needle where we can get that Valentine does not literally mean this, but other characters can assume he means. Yes, this is again this from early on. Like people, uh, that when we historicize these plays. We tend to say, oh, well, his original audience would have viewed this or that from it. But there, there is always the possibility that his original audience were just, oh, this is shit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they might have hated it too. Yes. There so might, like, have, might have been reviews out. Shakespeare's play was great until the end. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, and like in Charles Gilden in Shakespeare's Life and Works, the fifth act of the play is much the best, uh, but Valentine is too easily reconciled to a man whose treachery and villainy deserve the stab especially when it is discovered at the very time that he goes to ravish his friend's betrothed. <laughs> and um, Alexander Pope says, it is, I think, very odd to give up his mistress thus at, one, thus at once, without any reason alleged. But our author probably followed the stories just as he found them. <laughs> so it's like, look, he, he was adapting a work. But, you know, Charlotte Lennox basically says, no, that's not a good excuse. He also paints Proteus in a much more disadvantageous colours than he is presented in the original. Um, so the idea is that, um, yes, yeah, so Shakespeare was not so slavish to the original that he couldn't have just removed this aspect of it. So, yes, we've gone over those lines. I, there's not really much way of avoiding them. <laughs> but then Julia faints. And then, you know, in, in that very theatrical way, she doesn't just say, oh, don't worry, I am. If I she am swoons. A... Yes. You <laughs> yes. Such a wonderful word that is all you need to say and people can understand what, what it means. Yes. Um, Behold her that gave aim to all thy oaths and entertained them deeply in our heart. How oft hast thou with perjury cleft the root? So even after waking up from a... I mean, I've woken up from fainting and I'm never this eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, I remember just... I, the only thing I can think of is where the fuck am I? That's the, that's the extent of my mental faculties at that point. Um, 
Or maybe in the olden days, women were fainting all the time. They learned to have these little speeches at the ready. But, um, so then we have um, the Duke and Surya brought in. Now, how do you view this? Where it seems like, like so there's a scene where I think it shows that Valentine, he has become a bit more manly in, or at least a bit more direct uh, because he does. This is the exchange. So Valentine says, "Forbear, forbear! I say it is my lord, the Duke." Your grace is welcome to a man disgraced. Banish it, Valentine. Then the Duke says, Sir Valentine. And Thurio says, Yonder is Sylvia, and Sylvia is mine. And Valentine says, Thurio, give back, or else embrace thy death. Come not within the measure of my wrath. So, basically, so I'm wondering how we're meant to view the sort of the switch in registers here, because he says, Oh, I'm look at me, my my worthless self, oh Duke. And then he says to, to Thurio, Oh, piss off, fuck off. <laughs> um, do we view this? as being so there are two ways in my mind to view this one of them is that he is using you know conventional manners towards the duke you know denigrating himself when really he doesn't mean he's denigrating himself and then being you know sit down Thurio. there's another way of viewing this which is that he is pretending that he still respects the duke but he un he, he acknowledges that he has all the power in the situation and he can kill them all if he wants to and yeah, I, I think it's more about respecting the position of the Duke as both Duke and father of Sylvia. Yes. That it's like, yeah, I'm outside the law, but that's still Sylvia's dad. <laughs> uh, and how do you view Thurio's like, final... Like, he, he does say, you know, Sylvia's... That's Sylvia and Sylvia's mine. But then after, you know, uh, Valentine says, look, I'll kill you if you come any closer... He's like, Sir Valentine, I care not for her. I hold him but a fool that will endanger his body for a girl that loves him not. I claim her not, and therefore she is thine. And do you think that this is him actually him actually believing this, or is him saying, look, um, look I mean, there, there are multiple ways where you can view it being too much, too much effort to get her. I, yeah, I, I think this... it's more of a, I wash my hands of this situation. This is fucked. I'm going home. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I had to be convinced to come out here in the first place. Sorry, Duke. <laughs> Look, I, I, I'd rather be lower in the rung in society and not put up with this weird ass bitch. Yes. <laughs> I, yes yeah, so, I think I think it's literally him washing his hands, going, "No, nah, no, nah, I'm I'm never going to fight for this woman. I would have taken it if no one stopped me, but you deal with her. Not my problem anymore." Yes, and you know. We mentioned before the way the Duke does seem to change his opinions of people quite quickly. Like, of um, he says, you know, I, I realize you're trying to elope with my daughter. Well, get out, leave, you base and awful fool, get out. Uh, so he does that. And here, I'd say that here there is a way to make his shift here a bit more acceptable. So he says, I do applaud thy spirit, Valen, and think thee worthy of an empress love. I know then I here forget all that former griefs. Cancel or grudge, repeal thee home again, plead a new state in thy unrivaled merit to which I thus subscribe. Sir Valentine, thou art a gentleman, well derived. Take yes, thou, they, Sylvia, but thou. I don't think that's preserved. earned. I, I, I don't yeah. think it's earned what the Duke does. Um, and I want to compare it to. There's one in which it is earned. There's a later Shakespeare play where a similar scene happens. Where it feels yes. more earned that this guy, yes, that the father would accept him now, but this this uh, is not the case here. I mean, when when it comes, so if you view it as genuine words, he's saying here, 
But then on a, another note, um, you know, there are some productions, they just have the outlaws circling them, like their, their hands on their swords at this moment, <laughs> where, where the Duke is realizing that I probably shouldn't go against the guy with the, with the militia. Yeah, well, I'll wait until <laughs> I escape this area. <laughs> yes. Although, you know, you wonder how um, long lasting any agreements will be made in this context. Yeah, if it was played like that, it would be different. Um, I guess you yes. could also play it as, oh, well, shit, if Thurio won't have him, I, I need to marry her off to someone. Yes, and, well, this guy, he's hes not a bad guy. Well, he's got a, I mean, he sort of is a bad guy. But, um, you know, he has money. He's a good guy. He's a relatively noble guy. Yeah. He's willing to and fight for her. Yes, yes. And my daughter does seem to hate everyone else I'd rather set her up with. <laughs> It'll be the easiest way to deal with her. Yes. And then, you know, everyone comes together, they give each other a big hug, and then, look, everyone's happily ever after. Let's all get married. <laughs> uh, do you like this ending? Uh, it's a typical Shakespeare ending. Um, yes. You know, th- this whole the- this whole play reeks of Shakespeare showing off some of his wordy skills, but not having any depth to his plays yet. Yes, there I, is no depth I mean, of, in this. Yes, a lot of the early attempts to date Shakespeare's plays, you know, before they'd found all of these, um, you know, documents which lets us antedate the plays. You know, they would just say they would say stuff like, "Well, obviously, this is early." Uh, well, some people thought it was one of his late plays because its style seems to be as simple and unadorned as The Tempest. Um, but, you know, some people said, well, look, yeah, I, I can't imagine. Let me actually find the the note. Um, but the basic idea is someone said that I cannot imagine that Shakespeare got worse and worse throughout his career. And even if he got worse in terms of poetry, I, what is failing in here is like his moral and emotional maturity. So that's the problem with this play. So this must be an early play. That was their reasoning for it. <laughs> I think I, I think I reason along those lines too. Is that there, there's no there's no exploration of theme here. You have to work hard to explore themes when discussing this play. And as I said, I have problems with the structure. I have problems with some of the character choices. Um, the the wittiness is there. He he knows how to use the English language well, though, from the beginning. Yes, that Shakespeare he sure can write. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I remember, you know, on the note of him, you know, when he comes back to themes like this with more like emotional, the moral maturity, like the 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 idea of forgiving someone who plainly doesn't deserve forgiveness. He he does that in the Winter's Tale, and frankly, giving the person who has done these awful things essentially what he wants and um, like leontes leonite leontes in um, the winter's tale his jealousy leads his wife to die of grief and then at the very end you know, he spends years feeling repentance feeling awful about it and then at the very end his wife comes back to life and then he gets his wife back now this is one of those things where he does not deserve this he does not deserve to get his wife back he's an awful human being he has not done anything to deserve this coming back and yet and yet you know some people would say that that's the point this is the nature of forgiveness the person does not deserve what they're going to get back, and yet they do. That is, at least to a Christian perspective, what forgiveness and grace means. So he does return. Shakespeare returns to these themes, and he does them actually quite a bit better later on. 
Rich. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think you know where he wants to go in this play. You know, you can see the wheels turning in Shakespeare's head of what he wants to be in a good play. He just doesn't yet have those skills as a storyteller. As a writer, yeah. already there. As a storyteller, has a bit of time to go. Yes, just in terms of character motivation as well as, you know, let, let's cut this down a bit. One of those yeah. weird things that even 90 minutes appears a bit too long for this. <laughs> uh, so, that's the plot. Now, let's summarise this. Let's Let's go and... Let's label a thing that we like. What's a part that you liked about this play? Your favourite part? Oh well, well, for me, it's clearly the comedy. Um, moments of comedy in this are as good as any other Shakespeare play. Uh, yeah, I, right. yeah. Uh, I especially like Lance falling in love and having an excuse for every single flaw that the woman he loves has. Um, that is probably my favourite part of the entire play Uh, but I also love the comedy of um, Valentine writing a love letter to himself I I, I think even outside of words the the concept of writing a love letter to yourself um, it it made me fall in love with Sylvia in a single scene that scene Um, they're, they're the two things that I polled up very highly. Oh, well. How about you? I'd say that my favourite part of it was the sort of inversion of courtly love. The fact that the cruel Mistress Sylvia has a very damn good reason to hate Proteus, (laughs) where our sympathies are no longer with the the lover. They are definitely with the woman. (laughs) It is... That, that is an interesting way of doing it that I've never seen before. Yeah, so uh, that is that like is this. good. And now, a part we did not like. I think it's fairly clear that the, the worst part are the problematic lines, but assuming that it's too low-hanging a fruit to pick for parts we don't like, I think the part I don't like is how unclear Proteus is. In a later Shakespeare play, you wouldn't be asking, does Proteus become bad or is he already bad? When does Proteus change? These things would be clear. So it's how unclear the arc of Proteus is, is probably the part that I think fails the play the most. Yes. For me specifically, it is the, the moment where he is first meeting um, Sylvia, Sylvia and his conversation yeah. with Valentine afterwards, and where he does still seem, I mean, you, you sort of justified this earlier on by saying that he was being swayed around to Sylvia by Valentine's praises. Uh, but to me, it does just feel like he moves from having a ra- rather mature view of love to immediately loving Sylvia for no particular reason. <laughs> I'm not saying that love needs a reason, but usually we at least are shown the progression of emotions, even if we don't see the reasons for these emotions. But here it just happens. And I guess the other thing that I didn't like, and it says something that I've got more things I didn't like than did, but the other thing I didn't like is just how how unimportant Julia is in the entire story. 
Julia has there. no importance to the story and is just there. She has a plot, but it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, She could have stayed yeah. home through all that and it wouldn't have mattered one bit. I mean, isn't that the criticism they make of, like, Indiana Jones? It's like, well, yeah. he didn't need yeah. to go there. They would have died anyway. And I yeah. say that that doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing. It, it, just because he doesn't have any effect on the plot does not mean that it is a bad plot. Maybe she, she has a character arc. She has um, a commentary purpose. So even if she is rather um, not influential on the plot, she does. I do like her as a part of the play. Whereas I, I don't even like her as part of a character. I don't think she's created enough as a character for me to care about. We, we get that first opening scene where I was kind of interested, but beyond that, like even the scene with her and Sylvia, I think while it's a nice scene, it's I, I still see Sylvia as the main character in that scene. Ah oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I don't I don't have much time for how Julie is written here. I think she's written poorly. Yes, yes. I well, that's where we have to differ, and that's yes. <laughs> where we have to. That's where we have to end. So, what play are we doing next time? I think next time we are doing Henry the Sixth Part Two. Because apparently Shakespeare wrote Henry VI Part 2 and 3 before he wrote Henry VI Part 1. I really assume he did not give them those, those numberings first time Oh, through. no. They're just <laughs> the parts of the life that he wanted to cover first. Yes, yes. And apparently it was an attempt to capitalise on Christopher Marlowe's Tamerlane. The works cited in this podcast were the Oxford Shakespeare's edition of The Two Gentlemen of Verona, Shakespeare, The Critical Heritage, edited by Brian Vickers, and biographical details came from William Shakespeare by Peter Holland by Oxford University Press. The music opening and closing this podcast is The Fairy Queen by Henry Purcell. This musical recording is in the public domain and taken from newsopen.org. Thank you for listening.